Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, which is what I always say. It's almost become the introduction to the show. I don't really like it. I don't know why I say it, but you know, I've now said it enough that it feels like the thing I say at the start. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to bang on for ages in this introduction because, uh, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who don't enjoy that, but... uh, Those people are probably skipping past it anyway. So if you've stuck around, thank you. Um, So here's what I've got to say, a couple of things. Uh, Firstly, today's guest, uh, I am so excited to have on the podcast. Her name is Helen Razor. Uh, She has a new book out. It's called Total Propaganda. It is about uh, capitalism and Marx. And it's interesting and fascinating and provocative, And uh, as is she. Uh, This is... Uh, a lovely chat that I had with her. I mean, she does most of the chatting. For those people who uh, don't like this podcast when I talk, and there are some, I get the feedback online, uh, you will enjoy this episode because uh, I went over to Helen's house in Melbourne. She was uh, very nice to invite me over, even though it's interesting when it comes to Helen. I, I mentioned this a little bit on the podcast, but we didn't really get bogged down in it. But uh, when I went to university in Canberra, I was a kid from, uh, as everybody knows, because I tell this fucking story all the time, but I'm from a road that was named after my grandfather. You know, my dad lives on that road. My brother's a farmer on that road. The place I grew up had no shops and 250 people. Um, And uh, I was a bit scared about going to a big city to go to university. And I went to Canberra. That was my gateway city. It was uh, my foreplay to the big cities of the world. And... Uh, in the first week I was there in O-Week, a friend of mine convinced me to go and see uh, the Triple J Breakfast Show live at the uh, University of Canberra Bar. Now, I had never heard of Triple J because it wasn't in uh, my area. We had uh, 3TR, 12.42 3TR, Sound of Gippsland in the Valley. Uh, Steve Mummery in the morning. That's what they used to play on the bus. G'day, I listen to Mummery in the morning. That's what you used to have to say. If he rang you up, if he rang you up and you answered, it was like the cash cow. If he rang you up and you answered, G'day, I listen to Mummery in the morning, they would give you uh, $12.42 or $124 and whatever, you know, 20 cents or whatever. And uh, it was brought to you by Gippsland Shopping Centre Sale, where it's always 21 degrees and fine. It's a pretty much an indication of where I grew up that the biggest thing they had to recommend at local shopping centre was that they had air conditioning so uh, I had never heard of Triple J but the music that I liked was the sort of music they played on Triple J and a friend convinced me in O-Week to get up very early in the morning particularly very very early in the morning for a university student to uh, go to the Canberra University Bar and watch uh, the Triple J Breakfast Show. The first time I ever heard the Triple J Breakfast Show was live in that bar that morning and I sat there and it changed my world. It changed my life. Uh, I never imagined that Five years later, six years later, whenever it was, seven years later, eight years later, I don't don't even know anymore, uh, that I myself would be doing that exact same job and I myself would be the person getting up and going to those uni bars and doing that job. But obviously I was very inspired by what I saw that day and uh, Triple J uh, and radio have been uh, broadcasting uh, this podcast or my other podcasts. It's been a really big part of my life, and I love the creativity that, uh, as radio people will call it, the theatre of the mind, gives you to create stories in people's minds. Uh, I'm about to venture back into the world of breakfast radio. It's been oof, 12 years or something, 13 years since I stopped doing breakfast radio, and I imagine that I would probably never do it again. But um, I've accepted a new challenge, something that I'm really, really excited about, to be honest. Uh, Something that I'll probably talk about on and off as as we go on and as the challenge unfolds in front of me. But um, I'm going back into that world for a whole range of reasons, uh, all of them good. 
some of them to do with my life and my health and some of them to do with the the creative challenge that um, this opportunity presents me. But uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, I'm really excited about it. Um, maybe more than any other that um, I finally get to go back to Melbourne. Melbourne, a city where I started my comedy career. Melbourne, a city that uh, has supported my comedy career more than any other city in the entire world. And I finally get to go home and wake up every morning with the city that has been best to me in the entire world. So it's it's exciting. Uh, part of the reason it's exciting is um, all the wonderful people I also know down in Melbourne and I'm going to get to chat to on this podcast. So uh, Helen Razor is one of those people. She invited me out to her house. We have uh, circled around each other over the years, but never really met. She reviewed comedy. Uh, we worked uh, not at Triple J. Uh, our paths never crossed, but obviously they've... Uh, you know, vaguely crossed and we'd become friends online, but we'd never really hung out. Um, she invited me over to house. Uh, I, I won't give too much away, but I, I, her and her partner, uh, she, she uh, got me some cheese. Uh, we had a really lovely time. We had a couple of drinks. We had a chat for about an hour and a half. And then uh, we started recording the podcast and it's fantastic. Her mind is nonstop. It's brilliant. It's uh, she's a con contrarian in the greatest sense of it. She's provocative. Um, I love listening to her talk. Uh, I could have talked to her for hours. We barely got to anything I wanted to talk about. And yet, uh, I think everything that you're about to hear is also fantastic. Hey, uh, here's another thing I got to tell you. I'm going to be really quick. Okay. I've already done like nearly six minutes. So this is my version of quick, but, uh, here's what I'm going to say is, uh, I'm doing this live for the very first time, not this right now. Although technically, yes, of course I am doing this live, but you are hearing it recorded. I am going to do an episode of Willosophy, uh, Lilosophy, which is uh, my side podcast to this. It's hosted by a person called Lil. Uh, Willosophy, um, live at Giant Dwarf. There's this new festival that's happening at Giant Dwarf in Sydney, uh, called Yak Festival. It's a festival. It's kind of like a festival of dangerous ideas that doesn't call itself the festival of dangerous ideas. And it's a really cool new comedy and sort of arts and podcasts and, you know, just for smart people who want to listen to, you know, kind of smart, fun things, uh, festival. And they asked me if I'd be involved and uh, I'm going to be involved in a minor way in a couple other people's shows, but I wanted to do something of my own, but I'm incredibly busy at the time and uh, at the moment, and I've got to move into state and start a new job and, do all my current jobs and so it's uh and my health's not good uh people who regularly listen to my other podcasts will know that i haven't really sat down for about three months uh so uh this podcast is the one that gets ignored the most uh i decided i would do one live because at least it gives me an excuse to do one so that will be at the yak festival i cannot tell you it's sunday november the 5th or 6th Anyway, Sunday. It's the first Sunday of the festival and it's on at three o'clock in the afternoon and I can't tell you who the guest is because, well, because that guest has shows of his own. Yes, there you go. His own to sell at that time. Uh, it was originally going to be her own. Uh, I had two people on my list for who I thought would make amazing guests who would be great for philosophy, but also, you know, great for a live show of philosophy because it's got to combine those two things. Uh I was lucky enough that both of those people agreed to do the show. One of them was Hannah Gadsby, and we'll get her back on another time. It turned out that uh, she had agreed to do my show, but in the meantime, uh, she got offered a whole run of shows in London uh, after she won the uh, Best Show Award at the Edinburgh Comedy Festival. So she'll be overdoing those uh, shows instead. But um, I'm going to catch up with Hannah another time, and that's going to be absolutely brilliant to talk to her about 
uh, her amazing show, Nanette, that is still playing it in some places around the country. I highly recommend it. It's one of the most amazing shows that is not just a comedy show, but is much more than a comedy show and is uh, about much more than comedy, but is also about the limitations of comedy. And it has provoked me probably more than any show that I've seen in a very long time. So I, I want to talk to Hannah about this year and the great success of a retirement show and the fact that it's meant that her retirement has really fucking uh, dragged out a little, <laughs> maybe even longer than she imagined. So I uh, should be fascinated to talk to, but uh, my guest for the day uh, for the first live philosophy is no less fascinating. Um, he is a comedian who's had an amazing last sort of, well, five years, but an amazing last 12 months and uh, the opportunity to uh, talk to him in front of a crowd of people about those 12 months and his new experiences and all the things that have happened in his life in that time is going to be fascinating. Uh, I can't tell you what it is. So you're going to have to take a risk on me. You're going to have to take a risk that um, you enjoy uh, listening to the people that I choose for the podcast and uh, you're going to have to take a risk that... Uh, you will enjoy the podcast regardless of whether you're interested in the person that I will have hopefully chosen a person that will be entertaining and interesting to you regardless of whether you're a fan of them and maybe you'll walk away at the end and be a new fan of them. Uh, anyway, look, if you're curious, you can probably, you know, do some Googling and work out who's in town and, you know, make up your own mind, but uh, I can't tell you. So anyway, there you go. We didn't quite get to 10 minutes. That's not a bad intro. I have a whole range of other podcasts, Tofop, Fofop. Uh, Two Guys, One Cup, which is my AFL podcast with Charlie Clawson. And uh, if you're an AFL fan, we've got a whole bunch of new cool stuff up there. Justin Hamilton's on a recent episode, and uh, I'd I'd love you to check that out. All right. I have a TV show called Gruen. Check that out on the TV as well. And, you know, uh, all right. I'm going to stop before it gets to 10 minutes. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Cheers. Bye, Helen's book. Uh, welcome to Philosophy. My name is Will Anderson. I am the host of the podcast. I am here with a guest that I have wanted to have on this podcast for a very long time. No, you um, say that, don't you? Hang on. I haven't introduced you yet. Okay, I'm about to introduce you. A uh, guest, who are you? My name is Helen Razor, and you know very well, Will Anderson, that I begged you and begged you for a little dash of publicity to exhume the, the the dying remnants of what used to qualify as a career. Well, you firstly, wanted me on the podcast. Of course I, I did. Begged. That's well I begged. Both of those things are true. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, for, well, you good, have, good to probably meet you. Yeah, you too. Because this is the thing. Like, so this podcast essentially uh the idea is that everybody who's ever been on the podcast has some connection with me in some way. Mm. I, I guess so far of all the people I've had on, in some ways you have the loosest connection, but it feels like one of the more strong ones because you have actually been a constant in my life for much longer I, than you would be aware of. I apologise for that. And we both have, of course, done the same job. Well, let's go back to when that job then. I uh, was a little kid from country Victoria. You uh, are not that much younger than Nana here, by the way. Well, I, I will put this in context, though. I, it was my first day at university. I'd gone to Canberra to go to university, the University of Canberra. Oh, did you go to Canberra? I grew up there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was my first Hideous time in a big place. city. 
and a big city of three hundred thousand. Well, it was a transition city for me from yeah. a place that was had two hundred fifty people. I yeah. went to it like that was my big city version, and as one of the O Week uh, welcoming events uh, at the Canberra University Bar, the Triple J Breakfast Show did a live OB from the Canberra University. Oh my gosh, Bar. I remember Breakfast that. Were you OB. there? I was there. Not only was, was I, I vile there, to you. No, no. <laughs> Not only was I there, it was literally the first time I had ever heard Triple J because we didn't have Triple J where I grew up in the country. That was wild. They'd opened the bar. At, right. I mean, this was at, the 90s right. and, you know, university students still had, you know, union facilities. There were still compulsory union fees and, and university students still had a sort of a community life, which doesn't really exist now anymore. I mean, people are all there for vocational reasons. I'm assuming that you were at university for... Uh, find out what I might like to do and the kind of guy I am reasons. That's why sure. I went to university, which is not something that people could do. So, you know, you get to spend a lot of time in the union bar. I'm not um, maligning this practice at all. I actually think that it's very good. I think to do a few years of humanities and find yourself makes you a more tolerable human. Yeah, everyone should do it. Um but I remember that, and it was a big morning, and everyone was drunk. Everyone was drunk. I remember seeing uh, Mikey Robbins skull a beer while one of the songs was playing. It was one of his party tricks. Right. And, of course, as an adult and as an entertainer now, I completely understand that. But it also takes me back to the time where you don't know how the magician's trick works, yeah. and you are captivated by it. I remember just going, it's like 620 and this guy's like yeah. sculling an entire beer. Yeah, no, he was doing it for you. You, 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 you are now. You're talking about you know because you know this is the um, underlying theme of your podcast. People with whom you have some kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the people you you, you speak with. Um, you're mates with Mikey now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. Mikey and I are still kind of like you know cranky brother and sister. I, I love his guts. Um, and speaking of his guts, when when. <laughs> He did that with the beer, as he would often. We did a lot of university OBs and there was these excitable children there and they weren't there to see us. They were there to rub up against each other and just sort of like experience the time. And that was fine. We were happy with that just to be part of their good time. Um, And he would scull the beer and then he'd go and like he'd spew. Like that's what had to happen. Um, Well, that disappoints me. That's like a glimpse behind the scenes that I... But, I mean, you know, he couldn't be drunk on air. Well, surely he was drunk on air at different times when you guys I may have been drunk on air at different times. But, I mean, not, 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 not often. But it was, it was a party trick. I do remember that very clearly, though, because I'd never heard the station and this was first week of uni. And I remember sitting in that bar that day watching this show happen. And it felt less like a radio show and more like you were invited kind of to the coolest party where, you know, these people were hosting the party and playing these fun songs and sort of entertaining you in between the songs. Yeah, it was a strange time and I don't know whether, because I've never really spoken to you at any length before, um, but my experience was really weird at Triple J. It was just pure luck, you know. I sent a demo tape of my public radio program to them, just at, which many, many kids must have done. They gave me, you know, a, a little gig and um, I met Mikey who was writing comedy for the, the then breakfast show. Sorry, Maynard. Um, and um, we just got on really well and formed a fast friendship. Um, so, you know, he and I were just like really, you know how you're really attracted to friends at various points in your life? You know, I, I think 
I mean, I don't know. This is a this is a fact, a non-factoid off the the top of my dizzy head. But I think mostly people would only have like four or five of those really um, intense friendships in their life. Do, would you agree? Yeah, I agree. And that's certainly an age and time of your life where you are yes. susceptible to have one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 22 and he was 29. And um, we just got on so well. What was, and it, was it that kind of bonded you two together? Uh, working class background, chip on the shoulder, um, you know, like being wildly affected and liking to drop philosophers' names. Um, you know, just that real kind of like white Australian working class hubris because, you know, we'd come of age in the 80s and the 90s and like just got the tail end of free education um, and just experienced that very brief taste of, of something approaching democracy, mostly for the white classes in Australia. And we were like, we were conscious that we had learnt more than our parents. Um, at, you know, none of our parents had finished high school. And I think so it was that sort of like shared cultural uh, um, experience um, and that shared love of knowledge. He's always been more of a history guy and I'm more of a sort of political philosophy guy. But it was just, yeah, pretension, um, uh, an actual affection for what is now called boganism um, and mostly that and punk rock. So it's interesting, uh, and, we, and we might as well start here because you talk about you know having a an interest at least in you know philosophy or like the philosophical oh, leanings. Changed my life. I so mean, really, this show this show is called philosophy. But sometimes, really, what I'm asking people is, you know, what do you reckon life's about? But sometimes we actually talk to people who have genuinely had an interest in philosophy, you know, traditional philosophy, I guess, well, that's probably not the right way to put it, but, you know, what people would broadly describe as philosophy. So, we, well, what, what is technically and correctly called, called philosophy? philosophy. Yeah. I mean, philosophy is one of the things that we in the West can be proud of. It's one yeah. of the things we actually did more or less right. I mean, with, you know, considerable problems along the way, of course, but without philosophy, there is no science. So where did this um, interest come for you then? Um, well, I, I initially from my father, I suppose. I mean, again, you know, bloke who hadn't finished high school, but uh, at some point or another became very interested in the idea of reason and logic. And, um, you know, I remember once when I was um, uh, about five or six, um, I was a little precocious at school, never a genius, but I mean, it was a pretty average state school. So, <laughs> you know. and I was loud, I was loud uh, and precocious yeah. about what I'd learned. And I wrote an amusing story. And I remember, um, the, the headmistress, Miss, Miss Markham, I was sent to her office, not to be reprimanded, but congratulated. And she said, I think you're a genius. I mean, you know, like being tested, not, <laughs> I mean, as is plain to anybody who is listening now or has ever written, read a piece of shit that I've written, not a genius. But I went home that day convinced I was a genius. Right. <clears throat> I mean, you know how children apprehend words? Like they, it's always, um, uh, you know, they're very literal in their interpretations and if somebody calls you something, then that's you, you have to investigate what that thing is. Um, which can be both good and bad for, for children. And I went home and told my father I was a genius and he said, no, Helen, you're not. You're quite bright, but you certainly don't qualify as a genius. 
if you work hard, you might do well, but you're not a genius. And I cried and I told my mother because I'd looked up genius in the dictionary by the, having only recently learned to read. I was quite late at, at learning to read. Um, and, um, you know, my mother said, Trevor, call her a genius. And he said, I won't. I won't. And honestly... Dad hardly ever stands up to mum. Right. I know this will surprise you, but my mother is actually quite a dominating woman. I mean, I know that I don't have any of those characteristics <laughs> myself, but um, what's your mother like? Uh, my mother is uh, dryly funny, is right. what I would say. Very warm, dryly funny. Right. Uh, she was a city girl who married a farmer, so right. she had a little bit of a... Well, she grew up in the country, but she went to the city to school. And so she had she loves the city. Still to this day, one of my great desires, whether it would ever happen, is I think my mum would love nothing more than for me to go and do the Edinburgh Festival and for her to come and stay with me for two weeks and go and see like eight shows a day. And like well, has she done that? She's not. Why not? Well, it's... You, you, should, you should do that. Well, that does involve me having to go to the Edinburgh Festival as well and then take my mum, which is like, you know, a whole different thing. Well, couldn't you thing, just go but... as a consumer rather than having to do a show? I would love to do that, Helen. That's one of my great uh, I mean, honestly, I've gone to Edinburgh as a, I've gone to Edinburgh as a tourist. It's yeah. like, it's such a fun thing to do if you yeah. don't have to work. I say this not to rub it into my mum's face uh, if she listens to the podcast. I say it in the hope that at some stage this is something that we will do together. No, no, no. You should, you should do it once... Um, I just, yeah, my parents were never sort of extraordinarily well-to-do, but at one point, um, around about the time, like in the early 90s when airfares got cheaper, my grandmother, my mother and I went to the old country. We went to Ireland to, you know, seek the grave of uh, one of our ancestors and it was an awesome thing to do, you know. It was uh, that kind of um, travel is, I mean, you know, I'm, this stuff about looking for my cultural past or so I think it's personally all nonsense. Um, but um, uh, it was just a nice thing to do as an adult, you know. Yeah, my mum loved, uh, like, she loved musicals, you know, really. You know, we were country kids, we, but we come down to the city to go and see, like, a, you know, a musical. We go to, like, the, the Regent Theatre or the Princess Theatre or something like that and go and see, you know, musicals. That like was which really, musicals? Oh, anything. Like, I mean, you know, anything from Andrew, you know, your, your standard Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff to, I mean, I remember mum and I saw Hugh Jackman in Beauty and the Beast. Oh my you know, goodness, like, that must have been marvellous. Yeah, so she loved it and yeah. she took me to comedy as well. So when I was 17, um, she took me to see Billy Connolly at Hamer Hall, like bought, bought tickets for my birthday and, you know, we drove down together and sort of went and saw the Round about that time, he and... was one of the world's truly virtuosic swearers, wasn't he? Oh, so this was so 25 or so yeah. years ago, 26 years ago, and we went and saw him together whenever he was out two years ago or whatever, we went and saw him at Hamer Hall again together. But um, I remember at the time, 17, 16, 17 years old, sitting you know, in this room with 3,000 people and the thing I remember was the swearing. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I, remember... mean, you know, I mean, he was exceptionally gifted at it and it, and it is a true art, right. isn't it? Well, in the way that he was doing yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a comedian, but I admire comedians who swear correctly. Right. You, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. wasn't an unnecessary swearer. He was a swearer where the swearing added an extra layer to what was going on. But he also had a way of swearing yeah. that... You know, there was people in that room from 8 to 80 who were all 
Yeah, there was no one covering anyone's ears no, no, or no. being outraged by the fact that he was swearing. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. it's sort of like this kind of like aggressive um, uh, um, Caledonian oral punctuation with him, isn't it? Like just like it's the, the, the fuck is I should really never try to do accents, but it was just, you know, it was it was beautiful. It served as punctuation, I think. Like so uh, I, to wind back a little, uh, so you come home, you're not a genius. But yeah, 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 no. Your, so, dad's, your dad's standing yeah, the, the, up to your mum. This is just an example of, I mean, this is not some sort of like, you know, threshold no, experience. I just, you know. I am interested not in the something interest I, in philosophy. I yeah, think that came yeah, out so, of this. So, yes. so yeah, yeah. Uh, my, my father was always very interested in reason. I, I must ask him what he read or what he encountered because um, the idea of, you know, were you know agreeing on definitions of words for the purposes of an argument, um, such as is little Helen a genius? No, she's not. You know, um, so you know the so so that sort of thing about agreeing on a on a definition for a term um, is you know basically what you do in the human sciences anyhow. Um, and he was very interested in all that stuff, and he was a site manager on a building site. And there was a lot of like really nice blokes who worked for him from all parts of well, all parts of Europe really, rather than all parts of the world at the time. Um, you know, lots of people from what was then still um, the Yugoslav Republic um, and Italian people, uh, people from Turkey as well. And they would often come round to the house, and they'd just, you know, they were quite amused by this sort of nosy small child. And sometimes they would give me books. And so I remember one of Dad's friends gave me, believe it or not, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Oh, wow. Um, which, you know, I would like to say that I immediately knew it was horrible, um, but it took me a few years to realise that. It was, you know, certainly not influential. Um, and another of his friends gave me, and I still have it somewhere, Will is at my house, somewhere on the bookshelf. Somebody gave me like a... A 1905 edition of The Origin of the Species. Right. Never got through it, but just to have that, you know, that huge change in Western history and some knowledge of it. So, I, I don't know. Like, Dad was just always into thinking. Um, I mean, you know, in a very kind of, um, you know, not in any kind of postmodern sense, not even in really a 20th century kind of sense, um, but it was more like an Enlightenment philosophy sense, like, you, you know, the... The, the big questions, who are we, why are we here, uh, what does speaking mean and, and all of that stuff. So it was sort of like implicit in a lot of my interactions with him and still is. When you were young, did you have a sort of clear thought about what it was that, you know, why are we here, you know, those sort of questions? I mean, sometimes when oh, people All children are young, do, don't right. they? I mean, all children well, I don't ask. Know. Don't all children ask those questions? I, I'm, I'm not allowed near children to ask them. So. Right. No, it's probably best. I mean, right. you're a pessimist. If I'm just going around... You're a, a pessimist. I'm a pessimist. We exactly. should not be allowed near kitties. Um, <laughs> we'll just say, yeah, the world's going to shit. Yeah. Sorry. Good luck, mate. Um, <laughs> How do you like hot weather and hurricanes? <laughs> So, no, I mean, I think, uh, so... Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm so, interested. So, remembering that, yeah. um, you know, that the... the the fathers, they were, generally speaking, men of philosophy were also the fathers of, of science and, you know, like methodical doubt um, is a sort of an important part of the history of Western philosophy. Like if you're going to proceed in an argument um, or in a discovery, then, you know, doubt, 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 question your first assumptions, work from your first assumptions and all of that. Um, so, you, you know, in other words, it's a way of asking questions and I believe... 
Um, and um, recently I've spoken with um, uh, – he's the professor emeritus at King's College in London and, you know, has some grand title at the University of Melbourne, the Australian philosopher – uh, Ray Gaeta, and right, you might have heard of him from his um, book Romulus, My Father, which was made into a popular movie. Um, and Ray and I have been sort of speaking recently about, you know, what's a simple way to kind of like, and not in some condescending, oh, you all need to know about Descartes or you all need to know about Rousseau or it's like how do we, how do we get, you know, the pleasure of and the naturalness of philosophy out to people because so you, 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 like how do we organise? So say like, you know, you go to a writer's festival, right? Mm-hmm. I fucking hate these things. I can say that because none of them ever invite me. I mean, which is fine, you know. Um, I, and I suppose it's because I'm a bit of an asshole. I mean, I am. I've probably been rude to all the directors. But you go to these things and there is this kind of like consensus. You know, we all believe this and we're all literary. And you just get this really middle-brow discussion. Like, I mean, I don't know you know, if you want to comment or you want to agree, but there's a lot of panel shows on television. Not, of course, yours, which has... There's a, a lot of panel shows on television? No, <laughs> comma. Uh-huh. Not, of course, or M-dash, not, <laughs> not, of course, yours, which has at, as its focus a very, you know, particular thing, M-dash. Um, there are a lot of panel shows on television um, that purport to be intellectual, right? Sure. Um, and that purport to point to some kind of truth. And you find on the odd times that somebody with actually a different way of looking at things gets on that they're just completely pilloried and there's one particular show you know the twitter crawl around the bottom you know for sure if somebody's like actually upsetting the way you know the very acceptable margins of talk on television um that there'll be some sort of like derisive comment about that person if you want to go back and see um do you know the actual philosopher um Slavoj Žižek uh, I think we went to uni together, so yeah. No, of course, uh, I know who you're talking about, yeah. but without knowing the word yeah. to understand I mean, it. you know, like he's wacko and a bit of a clown, like actually very funny, but, um, you know, quite a good – and there's this time that he's on Q&A and, you know, so he's a Marxist, right, or Marxist fucking Lacanian, whatever, whatever, mutant brat. Um, and, you know, I mean, Tony Jones is just – laughing at him kind of thing and he's actually sort of saying something quite you you look it up on youtube he's actually saying something for for mine quite interesting so you know what we have a lot of the time especially and you know writers festivals are the best public example i can think of or shows like q a where we have the appearance of intelligent and respectful debate and we have the sensation that people are being deep and philosophical but you know week after week and it's kind of like part of my gig as a writer to um, you know, look at the way, you know, media moves and becomes more hegemonic. Um, the, they say exactly the same things w- week after week. And any true challenges, you know, and so there's really particular parameters, you, you, which is like you can get like, you know, a little bit hateful and culturally conservative. And, you know, some people will say, yay. And then, you know, as far so-called left as you can go and remember, you know, right and left do mean something and, you know, this is the way people, this is why people watch those shows to see where they're positioned on the popular political spectrum as it's widely understood. And as left as you can go is I think we can, we should all care about people 
and then you know you you get somebody sort of talking about how you might make caring for people actually happen in an institutional way and they're shut down I mean, you know, not always, but 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 often. No, I understand the point um, you mean. The, you, the, you're looking for the so pantomime this, of these yeah. ideas rather than the actual yeah. conf- dangerous and ideas. It, yeah, and it's just you have a consensus, you know, and it's a very kind of like Western, very US consensus. I mean, you saw how um, Yasmin Abdel Magid was treated. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, it's – you know, it should have been not a big deal for her to say, um, you know, I believe Islam is a feminist religion and to have, to, to have that sort of like discussed. Right. Um, you know, absolutely fine. Um, but, you know, instead it became an outrage. And, you know, they didn't have, knowing full well that she would say that, you know, they didn't have, you know, I could give you the names of like 20 um, female Islamic scholars who could, you know, talk to her about that and maybe disagree, but you don't, you don't get that. I mean, and then Yas, Yasmin, even though she's sort of seen um, as, you know, the child of the ABC, ends up kind of like losing her her gig um, and having to leave the country. And I mean, she's this sweet person. I mean, I've never met her. But she comes across as this sweet, very moderate person who is quite passionately spiritual. Like, how did that become an offence, both on the television show and then in the wider media? Like, how did that, this is an opportunity? I mean, this is an opportunity for good conversation, and it's not like there's not thousands, literally thousands, of um, Muslim women having this conversation at like the academic level, even every day. And but you know, and then you know, so all it, all that happens then is that you're either on Yasmin's side or you're not on Yasmin's side. And the very very interesting topic of how Muslim women are forced in Western culture to speak in one particular way or shut the hell up is not even canvassed. And you know, but all the time you have this appearance of tolerance, this appearance of intellectualism, but none of it's actually there. And nobody's going back or very rarely to like, you know, the foundational assumptions like what I was talking before about, you know, with dad when I was very young. Well, let's define that term before we go any further. So let's go back to our first principles. Let's start at the base of the argument and make sure every step is careful along the way. And that, I mean, in, in one sense, and then, you know, doing that stuff at university as well, um, you know, the sort of history of, of, of Western thought, um, I don't know, it's sort of, I think it saved me from a lot of mental ill health. Is there, and I guess this is the the question that I asked just so that it's asked because it's the conceit of the podcast and then we can continue to talk. Sorry, I am going on. No, that's the point. I had a drink before. Well, yes. I I don't drink much. Helen does it. Well, Helen's been a very good host. You you provided cheese, chocolate, biscuits, um, a whole range of things and alcohol. Mm. You drank yourself. And now, and then there's been about a 25 minute monologue since then on how you don't normally drink. That's not, that's what I've. I drinking, know. essentially what I've learned about you today is drinking makes you apologise for drinking. <laughs> Catholic. <laughs> you, were you brought up with any religion? Or? My, my nana, my mum's mum is religious. She believes in God and she Which goes kind to church of religion? Still, no, Anglican. So, oh, you know, yes. pretend. Yeah. It's, pretend religion. It's mostly... High ca- Anglican? No, uh, no, like it's like Church of England. She's like cake. It's it's street stalls and making cakes. Okay, and... so she doesn't take confession because they do in some of the high Anglican uh, 
You know what? I think that there is. I remember, like, because I when when I was a kid, you know, because if you yeah, nana's religious, you end up going to church and stuff. And I was like an altar boy. I think they did have communion. They're pretty sure that they had communion, but they don't have confession or anything. No, no, no. That's just. Yeah. Us. Yeah. Know, and that's why I but apologize. But there was certainly, yeah, there was certainly yeah. some, no, there was wine and bread. Yeah, there's wine and bread. Mm, yeah. yeah. So it's a proper Anglican. Yeah. But we didn't, but really it was mostly about the cup of tea and the cake afterwards and the, the sit around and the, you know, shaking each other's hands yeah. at the end and that sort of thing. You know, the sense of community. But that's, I mean, that's the thing about most church. And I mean, like, I'm assuming that you don't believe in some founding principle in the sky, right? Well, no. I mean, well, certainly not in the way that, you know. What, what what people mean yeah. when they say that. No, and I mean, it's absolutely fine with me. I mean, you know, like, it's it's actually fine with me. Like, I'm not offended, um, you know, intellectually or otherwise when people say they do um, because, you know, that kind of, um, uh, you know, morality is as in many respects as, you know, competes with or is as reasonable as any other. I mean, people have a lot of other ideas about, the foundation of the earth they say oh we're acting according to our human nature i mean that for me is really no different to the idea of god or we have capitalism because people are competitive again no different to me from the idea of god um and just that thing that you said about um religion so i was never really i didn't have like you i didn't have a negative particularly negative experience of religion um at all it seemed like a nice and curious place um, I had very nice Sunday school teachers and what have you. I mean, I did end up having a bit of an argument and never made my first communion. But, you know, I didn't want to wear that fucking white dress. <laughs> like, seriously, I didn't like dresses. And white dresses? I mean, you've seen what a grub I am, right? I mean, seriously, <laughs> no. Um, so it was more the dress than, than anything. Um, you know, I didn't really have a problem with the Lamb of God. Um, uh, but so I recently... Um, you know, it was Ramadan a few months ago and um, my uh, friend, very close friend, Shakira Hussein, she writes really good stuff, you should read it. Um, she said, right, you know, you're coming to an iftar and I thought it was just at her house. I was like, oh, cool, you're going to make the eggplant? And she's like, no, you're coming to a proper iftar. <laughs> so we went to the um, uh, uh, Islamic Council of Victoria and we went to the the, the mosque upstairs, you know, with the, the women and, you know, I was like – even though I have mostly because of the scholarship of um, Muslim women and, you know, you can see this um, in an Australian context, um, you know, like I guess most notably with Susan Carland who has a recent book called Islam. Um, also my my friend um, Amal Awad has another book, not about Muslim, Muslim women specifically, but about Arab women called um, Beyond the Veil Cliché. So there's, you know, there are women in the public sphere selling loads of books, um, writing about this stuff. So, you know, I just like ended up out of like, not because I'm a good person or anything, out of sheer curiosity and like jealousy that um, a lot of, Muslim women and Muslim Marxist women seem to have these great ideas. <laughs> like I wanted to pinch them. Um, and um, uh, particularly um, – uh, oh, anyway, I'm going on. So anyway, um, so, um, I'm, so despite all of this sort of contact with Muslim women, um, I still act like a white person – 
you know, Western Christian and get all very reverent about your different culture, right? right? And so, you know, I spent about like half an hour watching YouTubes about how to tie my hijab, right? It was pathetic. Right. You know, Shakira's got hers all over the place. She doesn't give a shit, but I'm like, I mustn't have any hair showing. And but you sure, know, Is that and not being respectful rather than Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Being, I mean, no, of, know, of course. It comes know, from a yeah. good place, right? And of course. And then, you know, and then the really interesting thing was I went to the train and um, I thought, I am not getting on this train in a hijab. Right. I just, like people said, it was like calling an Uber. <laughs> and then I put in Islamic Council of Victoria and, and the guy who, um, you know, is like uh, kind of like Anglo was this, what are you going there for, love? <laughs> it's like, shit. So I've had my five seconds of experiencing what it right. must be like to be a Muslim in Australia of the present. Yeah. And um, anyway, so I got there and I'm sort of all respectful and silent, right? Yeah. This is just relates back to what you were saying about how it's about the tea and cake. And... Um, so I go and, um, you know, and there's the, you know, the call to prayer. And, um, you know, I'm sort of looking around and then this one woman says to another woman, you know, pray now? And she said, no, I'll do it later. <laughs> Which, you know, you, you can do yeah. that. There's like, it's not yeah. like a strict Two right. minutes yeah. that in which you have to pray, yeah. you know, you got like a big wide window. Right. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I'm hungry. And, and, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a bit like church was. Right. Um, and uh, like not, you know, like, yeah, we might be, um, you know, aligned by certain spiritual beliefs, but um, it's the cultural experience and the social experience that people are there for. And then this one woman who was a crack up, she'd been, um, she'd migrated um, here from, uh, from Egypt um about 25 years ago and oh my god she had all sorts of things to say about the u.s military complex it was so fun and she was uh, and quite oz now in her accent and yeah. she would like very oz actually and she was like uh and shakira said to her i've seen you here before she said oh no 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 i come every day during ramadan she said who can be bothered cooking you get free food <laughs> I'm not meaning to malign the know. women or their spirituality or anything um, like that. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that they're just playing at being Muslims or, you no. know, any of that stuff, but it was like, it was a really um, interesting look. Well, um, I, th I think that sometimes people look at those things as being from the outside. I mean, certainly there's, there's always a fascination. I like AFL football and there's a couple of uh, Muslim AFL players um, who observe, Ramadan, like while they're playing the sport, and so always there is, which is tough as shit, right? I mean, seriously, so like we had a, a um, oh my god, what's the name of the the short forward who played for St Kilda who got, I think, unfairly suspended. Oh, uh, yeah, the I, I know who what's exactly his name? you're talking about. The it was the drug. Uh, the, he had the he had the. This is not because drink. I don't remember Muslim names, by the way. No, of course it's not. It's because. I don't give a shit I about some killer yeah. anymore <laughs> because I'm in my God. We're just going to pause for a second, Helen, while we find that out. Some people get mad when there's eating on the microphone, but I quite enjoy hearing people oh. eat in the middle of a conversation, to be honest What's with you. What's it called? Um, uh, dysphonia or something? I can't remember, but there is some name for um people being irritated by particular sounds and it's theorized that there's some genetic predisposition to 
loathing eating sounds. I don't have a problem with chewing sounds, but you know those people who do? They just some, go crazy. Some people have a real problem with it. Yeah. Like I, I, And I certainly have had feedback. Ahmed Saad, Ahmed by the way. Saad. Ahmed Saad, I'm sorry. Yes, he was quite talented. Yeah. And he had an energy drink. Well, the, Basha Hooley was the one who I was hearing the being interviewed about it last time around, and he was speaking. And they were, it, I guess, the point I wanted to make, or the the, the yes. idea that I wanted to introduce, was the way that the people interviewing him were talking about it was if as if these rules were all one hundred percent prescriptive of like this is the time you have to do this thing, this is the minute. And he was kind of trying to explain to them it was more about the philosophy of the sacrifice and the fasting and whatever. Like he was still able to drink if he was thirst like if yeah, if he was playing a game and he needed some water because he was like he'd just run for like three yeah, kilometers. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, he wasn't gonna get disowned if he didn't if he had a sip of water or No, whatever. there's a lot of loopholes during Ramadan. Like if but you're also a child, I, you don't have to right. do it if you're ill, you know, if you're traveling etc but the idea of these communities it doesn't mm. diminish the idea that they believe in what they believe in to say that somebody can wants to put off praying or enjoy their cup of tea or that the community aspect of it might be as important as the yes. yeah you know, the belief aspect of it okay yeah. so let's talk about do you have a philosophy whereby which that is influential mostly in your life is there something that you know you guide yourself with or that is your kind of overwhelming philosophy in regard to anything well, yeah, I mean, the philosopher Marx yeah. is probably the most influential and probably one of the first This is probably the least surprising answer yeah. I've ever got on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> I assume this is where this one was going to go. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Helen um, has a new book out, by the way. It's all oh, about yeah, Marx. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's about Marx. It's like, um, I, and I wrote it because I started getting quite a few um, uh, communications um, from surprising people, including you. Um, saying, what are you talking about? Tell me more. I mean, not that you actually said that, but you seem no, to be... That's, yeah, the, that is the... I mean, look, I I certainly it was really engaged in... Around, I mean, for me, having... I'll give you a quick little basis and then I just want you to talk because it's much better when you talk. But oh, I'll yes, give you a little just set up and then... It's so much better it when It is I... so much better, Helen. But I just want to give a little basis for it. And that's why you have a national television program and I'm fading into obscurity in the cheap rental. Well, to mention my show, here's what I will say. Mm. So doing a show that is about the idea of advertising and marketing means that every day we have a show where we discuss the influences of capitalism on our society, right? The pervasive influence of capitalism. There's another thing that you do on your show too, which which is... Um, well, not you specifically, but, you know, the, the guests that you have on. And they all seem to universally believe. Not so much, though. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember their names. Okay. But the older, more to. cynical blokes. Uh, yep, sure. You know, who are just sort of like, um, you, you, you know, they're just like, oh, yeah, you know, if you've got a good product, it'll sell, do a funny thing. Um, but the younger um, people, and and usually it seems to go along gender lines, um, like D, for example, I know D, like, and I know D passionately believes that she can um, transmit. D's on your show, isn't yep, she? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know D, and I know she won't mind me saying it because she's very open about it. She passionately believes that advertising can um, promote a good message. Yeah. Um, now, um, two things. One, I'm skeptical about that. Yeah. And two, advertising should not have that fucking power. Right. You know, in the same way that, like, I'm sorry, we should not be looking to advertisers for our morality. We should not be, you know, making 
you know, assumptions about the world or having our um, ideals persuaded by a 30 second ad. Okay, good. So, uh, um, and I guess so that's, that's, I would like to hear more on this. Yeah, I but just... that's an interesting thing I find out about your show. There's this sort of tension. Um, like there is this, I mean, because, you know, I've always sort of detected that, I mean, you know, you grew up on the land, you would have had some idea about the power of the banks when you were young. Mm, of course. Um, and you, you know, you grew up with primary producers. So there's no way you would have been raised without an understanding of the power of capital. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, but more so this show, like really at its heart, what it's meant to be about, like what we create, like what we make before the advertising people get involved yeah. in it. We actually, the, the essential question at the heart of the show is really that idea of like what effect has it had on us, the fact that we are an entire generation yes. raised by advertising. No, 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 but I mean a lot of the people that you have on oh, no, no, I un- um, I have absolute confidence that, yes, we should have this right. power and, you know, and there's this sort of comfortable – and, you know, look, I've said this to Dee and, again, I mean – and she's a reasonable person. I mean we, wi- we wildly disagree about a lot of things. Like, you know, we had this really long, tedious communication about her billboard for <laughs> Australia Day, uh, yeah. which I thought I was racist. This. You yeah. know, I mean, not intentionally so, no. but I thought that it could be easily apprehended as racist. A lot of people um, in both the Islamic and Aboriginal communities were really, really deeply offended. Um, it then became this sort of very liberal cause celebra and became much more important that it was shown in liberal places where people already agreed about tolerance. I don't even know if the billboard got put back up at its original site. And, um, I mean, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I, I, I believe that perhaps it didn't. Um, Dee, no doubt, will correct me. Um, and, you know, so she absolutely believes that, you know, there are people who know how to spread a message. And, yeah, there's people who know how to sell things, you know. Like, I mean... Like, you know, I mean, my life is a constant struggle not to drink Coca-Cola. I adore it. You know, I mean, I think that I'm above um, these influences. I know that I'm not, though, at the intellectual level, but at this sort of emotional level, I think, oh, I'm protected. No, I'm not, you know. Um, But so you can sell Coca-Cola or you can sell a vote even, you know, as an impulse purchase. (laughs) Um, But what you can't sell is you know, the topic um, or the pseudo topic of our discussion, uh, which is a worldview. You cannot sell somebody a worldview in 30 seconds. Although, uh, uh, although yeah, I, and I absolutely agree with that, but uh, I would perhaps add the caveat or the just the broader the conversation, which is that perhaps I would argue that the entirety of advertising has sold us the idea of capitalism because advertising is the poetry of capitalism, right? Every ad is essentially about capitalism at the end of the day. So I think the more that I've worked in this show where you're exposed to the fact that we are from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed being sold this idea, this broader idea of capitalism is good, which is what advertising does, right? Mostly that's what advertising does. So I think for me, I started to seek out a lot of voices that were perhaps offering counter arguments to that, Mm. which is where we kind of found ourselves having these conversations and you were having, you know, writing all this, you know, it was the time of your Bernies and all those sort of things as well, but you were writing in this space in an entertaining and provocative way. So why was it interesting to you and how did you decide that you were going to start writing about it more broadly? Um, Well, a couple of things happened. You know, um, I was in a really long relationship with a lady and she dumped me. (laughs) (laughs) 
And strangely, actually, I had been working in the lower reaches of the advertising industry, um, like really crap work, you know. Actually, Dee got me some work and thanks for that, Dee. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, like I was writing really low-level copy. Couldn't believe the money you get, though. Oh, yeah. Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, a lot of money for not much. Like, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. Um, Advertising and, has drained some of our most talented writers and greatest minds into a world they shouldn't be in. But, but it was a sort of a difficult relationship for reasons I shan't bore you with. Um, and, you know, I mean, still getting dumped was a huge shock. Um, but I was sort of like, for various reasons, the breadwinner. Um, and um, I become quite intolerable when I get, as you know, when I get an idea and I'll talk about it and obsess about it and read about it and want to talk to other people about it. And, you know, my partner wasn't like that. And I mean, I'm not saying she was a fascist or anything like, you know, it wasn't a totalitarian relationship, but she was like, I don't want to hear about this. Um, she actually dissuaded me from writing from, for, for Crikey, um, which is, I think, you know, the home of some uniquely provocative voices. Um, you, you know, I mean, and we all argue with each other there as well. Like, it doesn't have a single political view. Oh, like, often, oh, often within the same newsletter. Like, a, I mean, oh, that's one of my favorite things about Crikey is you can literally go from, you know, Bernard to yourself, yeah. or Guy to yourself, or something. No, like and that. it's a it's and, a weird space. And I, I mean, yeah. I am good friends with both Guy and Bernard. Like, we have genuine, like, true friendships. Um, you know, share intimacies and shit. Um, and um, you know, Guy stays in my shed sometimes, and. Um, I mean, we disagree about so much. You know, I mean, Bernard and I have a completely different view about um, macroeconomics, um, but, you know, we coincide on the idea that, you know, the the base, the mode of production is the most influential thing um, influencing mass behaviour. And then, you know, Guy is kind of like post-Marxist and, you know, we have these fucking tedious po- – that I wouldn't repeat in public because they're too boring. Um, <laughs> but we have like this – you know, so it's a – you know, it's a um, uh, a really, you know, a good space. I'm sorry, what was I saying? Well, I wanted to talk about like A, a how did you get passionate about this idea oh, of Marx and – Yeah, the, yeah, you know, so I was in a yeah, – yeah. So I was in a, I was in a relationship where, you know, it was like just sort of easier for the household health um, to do um, bland work, you know. I mean, lots of people experience that in relationships. I'm not saying poor me and all oh, this – kind of great problematizing writer was you know ripped from you know the public space because i mean i fucking what i say doesn't really matter ultimately at all you know i'm not an important voice or any crap like that it was just the best thing at the time for my relationship and my relationship ended and i was like i'm fucking reading capital again you know i mean which is a strange reaction (laughs) i suppose um, but again, and my friend Shakira says that we didn't have this discussion, but I insist that we did. You know, she's a funny lady and, you know, she was very um, helpful um, toward the end of my relationship where I was like, I was a complete mess, you know. Um, and there was that sort of added level of it being a same sex relationship. I'm not saying that it was like the homophobia that was bad, um, it was more like the homophilia. It was like, um, so like liking homosexuals overly, like everyone loves a gay pet, you know, these days. Yeah, right. You know, look, me and my gay friends and stuff. And when I was no longer, you know, in an identifiably same-sex relationship, you know, one person actually said to me, oh, it's a shame you two were so inspiring. I don't speak to that person anymore. I'm like, 
what like you only wanted me to function as your gay fucking friend fuck you like i'm a sad person like my wife has just left me you know like this is a universal human experience like this is some like primal or at least infant shit about your object your love object leaving right it's no different i'm pretty sure it's no different the grief of losing love is not different for anyone and you know so but so the way um, I, you know, because of these sort of like early experiences having, you know, quite a naturally clever dad and, um, you know, doing university, doing philosophy at university and stuff, it was like, so, you know, where do I go when I'm in a state? Well, apart from the psychiatrist um, uh, and the psychologist and, you know, whatever, um, big fan of all those people, um, <laughs> I go to books, you know, and go back to the define my terms, define my place in the world. And if you're looking at the big world, and I'm sure this is part of your interest as well, you find you lose yourself. If you're looking at systems rather than the self, it's actually, you know, almost a spiritual removal of yourself from the big picture. And you think, well, you know, isn't this interesting how like, you know, um, the movement of capital and my labor played a part in the end of my relationship. Right. And, you know, I mean, there was many other things as well. And, you know, isn't it interesting how, you know, homophobia and its good friend homophilia like made me more sad and, you know, all this shit. So, you know, go back to the texts that engage you the most. And so I was like that and I had this kind of like weird rush of like, I mean, I'm sure you've had awful things happen to you in your life because everybody has, you know, like there's been, you know, grief ends of things and, you know, fights with good friends and the ends of jobs and, you know, whatever. And all these things are big, right? Uh, I mean, leaving home is big. Um, and so you go, um, you know, you seek refuge in certain things. Most people do. And so, you know, Shakira and I were having this conversation and, um, you know, she was like, you know, she was joking. You know, she said, well, you could become Muslim. And I'm like, oh, I don't believe in God. And she's like, yeah, it's not a problem. Right. And, she, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, and then she said, but then again, you know, we've got a bad enough reputation. We don't need you. Right. Like she, she didn't say this, but I remember she did. It made me piss myself. Um, and, it, you know, and then she was also like, well, why don't you, you know, like she's an academic. Um, like she's done a postdoctoral thesis and shit. Um, and that's, you know, so she deals with stuff at a, you know, at a really elite kind of academic level. But she was like, well, you know, you like books and you're too impatient and disorganized and, you know, bad at footnoting to be an academic. So, but you do benefit from scholarship. So Christ, go back to the bloke you love, go back to Marx. Uh And um, so, you know, so get those definitions, you know, again, sort of going back to childhood, dad says, you're not a genius. This is the definition of genius. Like agree on your terms, Um, go back to the foundation of your thought, you know, the things that engaged you. Um, if you have had that opportunity to be engaged by big ideas and not everybody gets it, you know, if you've got the leisure and, you know, um, the uh, interested parents and that one good teacher and, you know, the time and the leisure and, you know, the experience of free university, I mean, these things just don't come to you out of the blue. I was lucky enough to have them. And, and so, you know, I went back to Marx and this is like, you know, 2012, 2013. And I looked around me and my God, the world is changing, you know, and there's this, you know, this fascist movement across Europe 
and Barack Obama has been, you know, all the hope change has drained out of his presidency. And I started reading about the global financial crisis, you know, which had happened some four or five years earlier. And it was, oh, geez, I've been missing all of this. And these are the ideas that I once held so dear. And, you know, well, on the global financial crisis, because I, do you think Australians in general missed it? Because having spent some time overseas during that time, obviously in the rest of the world, people were very aware that at least that it happened. Do you think that Australia, because that we were in sort of a more privileged economic okay, position? Okay, well, it depends how you measure okay. the effects of the global financial crisis. In America, it was very, you know, clear because six million people from six million homes were ousted. Mm. Now, um, yes, so, okay, so you have this highly financialized um, system and capitalism has changed a lot and, you know, especially in the last 40 years and Marx doesn't explain, you know, everything about the highly financialized era. So, you know, usually the assumption is whether capitalist or, or Marxist that there is this sort of strong connection between uh, at a really basic level label, labor and how much you pay for things, like work and how much you pay for things. Across the last 40 years, capitalism changes over time, which, you know, Marx always said that it would. Um, And um, so, you know, it changes shape. It's this very mutant, dynamic, innovative force that keeps changing. Um, And so, you know, people were not really producing things anymore. I mean, 95 percent of the money in the world according to a really great economist called Anne Pettifor who has a book called The Production of Money a new fairly new book um so 95 percent of the money in the world is created not by central banks but private banks you know and the shadow banking industry mm-hmm. so they have um you know led by the U.S. hegemon this extraordinary control and you know I mean you know what happened you see the big short like you know these guys and women knew what they were doing at Goldman Sachs. They were seeking out, like, you know, racially profiling communities that had never been given loans before. I mean, there's all these sort of, like, you know, people in the bad parts of Brooklyn and whatever who will say, I mean, you know, not bad in a judgmental sense, but, you know, self-described, like, you know, poverty-stricken areas which have, you know, like um, people of colour living in them. So there's these sort of, like, you know, community loan advocates who've been trying for years and years and years to get loans for um, black Americans, Latino Americans, they could never get them. Suddenly, right, the banks are just throwing money at anybody who wants it. And that happened here to a degree as well. And so we have this idea, right, that a house is costs what it's worth. It's bullshit. Right. You know, a house costs what the banks say that it should. There are countries where it doesn't. Like in Germany, there's certain laws around the cost of housing and how you can value a house. But a house can cost anything here. I mean, this, you know, modest home that we're in now that I rent, it's in, you know, not close to the city. I mean, it's quite, you know, nice. It's not a slum and it's sort of pretty. I mean, but a lot of the windows don't work and... I mean, $1.2 million is the value of this house. It's ridiculous, right? Well, it, like, it, it's a beautiful house. But yeah, it's a nice, it's a, it's a nice California bungalow. $1.2 million feels like it should buy you a really, really, yeah, really yeah, nice but, house. You know, it doesn't. <laughs> so, you know, like your typical capitalist will say, well, that's what the market's prepared to spend. Right. No, that's what, you know, you don't have an alternative and it's not even what you're prepared to go into debt for because we need somewhere to live, right? So... 
it's it's the banks that that set the set the prices, right. and it's the banks that you you know that they called them ninja loans, yes. no income, no job, no assets, or liars loans. And we had our own version here with the Lodoc loans. Um, and so you know, and then they sort of sold these things as you know these packages at, as double A AA or triple A rated, and you know then it all falls apart. So you know, I start reading about that, and then sort of reading about this guy called Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, having some dim knowledge of American politics and knowing that it was very neoliberal for very long and knowing that, you know, Clinton was a dick just as Blair was a dick um, and the whole, you know, what we call now like third third way um, were dicks. Like they were people who sort of said stuff about like tolerance and being nice um, and talked about social inclusion um, and guess what? Mark Latham used to be one of these guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's got this book from like 1999 called Civilizing Global Capital. And it's all about like, you know, I mean, seriously, like, you know, I don't know which is more embarrassing for him, believing in the power of capitalism to change people or being the fucking asshole he's become. I mean, it's amazing, really. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like two different kinds of asshole. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was like a Tony yeah. Blair, Bill Clinton. Right. From arsehole kind, to arsehole. Kind of guy. So like, I hear about this guy, um, Bernie Sanders, who's saying, you know, let's not bail out the banks. You know, let's not do the TARP bill as it stands. Um, but let's, um, you know, give the money to the mortgage holders. Right. They'll give it to the banks. You'll save the banks and people get to stay in the houses. No, no, we're not going to do that. Like, and even banks know that an owner-occupier is much more likely to make good on a loan than an investor. And I mean, that's why investment um, housing um, interest rates are higher. But, you know, we wouldn't do that because even though that would have saved, you know, rabbit ears, the economy in the same way, but it's like, okay, so we're going to give you all this money um, because you're too big to fail and, um, you know, and we're not going to put really any conditions on it, keep paying bonuses. And so, you know, Bernie Sanders had, had spoken about this and I found it sort of quite surprising that there were those real kind of like old-fashioned what Americans call liberals um, still there in the Senate. And um, so, you know, like mul- multiple things I had, I mean, I was so distressed when my relationship ended, I kind of lost all my work or just fucked it off. Um, started reading kind of like Marx, um, you know, just surviving on nicotine replacement therapy and coffee and books. And, oh, my God, I got so slim. And um, <laughs> When and, you're reading in this and, fashion, are you – like how do you read? Are you a reader who's like devouring from back to front or are you stopping and no, like you pulling know, apart I, an idea? How, how do you read? I, I wish I could say that that's the right. way that I read. That was the way I read as a child and an adolescent and maybe up to about 21. Um but I just kind of like lost that knack of mesmeric reading. And, you know, I said, like, I joke about going to the therapist and stuff, but I do go and see a therapist to try and address my problems with reading. I would like to read more fully. Um, uh, but, you know, I don't read often enough or, or long enough. I mean, I read every day, but I tend to jump between books um, and then, you know, maybe watch a lecture or something. Um, but I don't know, the deeper you, you get in, the easier it is to read. Um, you know, it depends. How do you read? Uh, well, I would like to think that, 
I used to read in a really good and productive way, but now I read in a quantitative, like in a in a quant- getting as much quantity into my brain rather than quality. I think I my I think my knowledge is way too general at the moment. You know, like when you just go, I'm reading all the time. Yeah, but, but I mean, you you know, you're kind of like a star, right? You sort of have to be a generalist. <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm not saying that in an insulting way, but you know, I mean, part of the you're doing like a you're doing like a big yeah, yeah, doing a big show on the ABC. Yeah. You can't not um, be a generalist. You, oh no, you no, yeah, no. Part, part of it is certainly as a result of you know the jobs and the career yeah. that I've chosen. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, I still am reading for myself as well, and I, I, what I would like to do is be able to read in two different ways. I think. I'd like to be able to have my work reading, you know, my general sort of get across everything. And yeah, then perhaps but have you a, work in a, prof, you know, like the entertainment profession and it's yes. like it, it's either all work or it's all leisure. It's both and never yeah. one or the other. It's true. That is true. Um, and, that you know, that's an experience that you know, a lot of workers have now too. Like, you know, you get emails at all time, times of the day and you're always on and, you know, you're always being watched or whatever. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm not comparing your lot or my lot to that of – you know, somebody who works in like the healthcare industry, um, which is much harder and, you know, like much more alienating and demoralizing than what we do. I mean, what we get to do is quite indulgent, you know, absolutely, hugely indulgent. Like I paid for my fucking opinions. I mean, seriously. I mean, I don't even have to write mine down most of the time. <laughs> like, at least you go to the effort of writing yours down. They put a nice cover on the book and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just say stuff and then I go, give me some money. Yeah. So, no, okay. So, talk to me about But, yeah, this. no, I read re- really well when I've got something overdue. Right. Like, then my best reading happens. So, okay. like, if I'm procrastinating, then I read well. So, I, I'm interested in when you, like, how how do you take, like, how do you know when you're, get, you're taking enough in that you then want to process it and start to kind of formulate? Because you're not a regurgitator. You're not a person who reads things and then cuts and pastes those things kind of into the middle of the well, thing that you're saying. it's just unethical, isn't it? Well, I mean, but even in a general sense for people who aren't literally cutting and pasting, often they're doing the intellectual version of cutting and pasting. Like, how do you know when you've read enough to start processing and, you know, reformulating it in your own voice and your well, own Well, when ideas. you have to pay the rent. Okay. I mean, you know, on, honestly. Yeah. Like, I mean, these days, you know, sort of a writer like me gets um, paid, you know, two to $300 um, a piece. So, um, and, uh, so, to, so, so people su- know, to how many words for a piece? Like, what are you talking there? Well, it sort of depends on the outlet. I but mean, are you talking some, like 500, 600 words? I know, or I mean, like but rarely... Um, like, no, mostly I I write pieces that are about twelve hundred. That's right. So, words. Like, and you get so, three hundred bucks. Yeah, for but it? it's not about word count. I understand that. But no, it's still, not about word. Like, yeah, but it's you it's know still a lot of work though. It was quite a lot of work, but I mean, again, you know, and I earn the median Australian wage. Yeah. You know, people talk about the typical Australian wage um, uh, being the average wage. The average Australian wage is nowhere like the typical wage that people might earn. The typical wage that people earn in Australia, the median wage, look at the ABS, um, is $50,000 a year, which is what about what I earn, yeah. um, which is, you know, enough to live a reasonable life as long as you don't want to go into debt. Right. Um, you know, um, like I can't buy a house but i mean fucking no one cans anymore so i don't give a shit 
Um, and, you know, it would be kind of like, you know, <laughs> a dreadful hypocrisy if I was like writing about like the, you know, the financialized um, evil and the house, the housing commodity price. And, you know, like I had a nice big bit of property. Well, hang on. <laughs> I, 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 but, okay. But that's interesting to me. Like, and we'll get back to the, the main gist of it. But I like that idea that you've just stumbled upon there, which is how much of, you know, to talk about something, do you have to be living that principle Well, yes, yes, well? yes. I, you know, I know, and I, I have um, um, agreements and sort of disagreements with this idea. You know, you can't speak for me. You can't speak about a particular social problem because you're not homosexual or because you're not black or because you're not a First Nation person. And, of course, you know, I can't tell that story. I, I can't think of how it would be to, um, you know, inhabit black skin in Australia um you know I can talk to some mates and they can tell me and I can read some shit but I'm never going to know so no I can't write a moving personal story about it um I have no problems whatsoever writing about the intervention now I should say that you know some um you know aboriginal people have said not your business and I'm like, well, no, it is my fucking business. There's a group of people in Australia being fucked by the government for 10 years. And I'm, you know, and, you know, it causes tensions, but, um, you know, I've really um, thought about it. And, um, you know, I think that it is um, an important thing to, you know, if you have a platform and you are concerned with, you know, human rights other than the right of fucking Andrew Bolt to, you know, hold forth about who are the real bigots. You know, I mean, there's this incredible thing still going on in the Northern Territory. Right. I mean, you know, incredible as in, you know, sort of defies belief. I mean, so, so there were never any findings that there was a higher rate of sexual abuse in Aboriginal communities in the Territory than any other place in Australia. Sexual abuse of children sadly goes on. Now, not at any higher level in the communities that the army was sent to by by John Howard. And then, you know, this program which now has some fuzzy-ass fucking name like Happy Futures or some shit like that. I can't remember what they call the emergency response now. But, you know, that's where we have, you know, things like the basics card where, um, you know, which is just government paternalism at its finest, you know, most egregious. Um, and... You know, I mean, there's stories um, from up in the, the territory about people, um, you know, so the supermarkets there, they have two lines, people f lines for the people mm -hmm. who have basics cards, which happen to be black, yep. and, you know, lines for the people with real money. And that's segregation. Right. You know, the effect is just segregation. You have a line of black people and a line of white people. Fuck off, you know, and, and this has happened and it continues to happen and Kevin Rudd supported it and Julia Gillard supported it and it has been going on for 10 years. Um, and I mean, you know, and then, you know, and nice liberals go on with all of this sort of like mumbo, white liberals about all this mumbo jumbo about, you know, how they don't own the land, the land owns them. Hey, you know, guess what? Aboriginal people like every other person on the planet um, adapts to the right. time in which they're in. You know, the concept of private property, right. not a hard one to grasp. 
they know their land was stolen. Pay the fucking rent and stop, you know. And and then, you know, Kevin Rudd doing this apology. And again, you know, I mean, I did have arguments with, with white people and black people um, about, you know, Kevin Rudd because I thought the apology was an abhorrence. Right. So why? Like how do, we, why, why, how do why white people it? say sorry? You know, how do they say sorry? You know, and you remember it was actually only an apology to um, the stolen generations. Right. It was not an apology no, for fucking general. everything. It wasn't, by the way, we because, stole your country and ruined everything. We're yeah, sorry so, for it all. So, so how, does it, how does a white man traditionally, in his traditional culture, yeah. say sorry? He gives fucking money. Where was the money, Kevin? Right. You know, and what happened to Kevin? Kevin was mythologized as this anti-racist and yet the intervention is ongoing. The intervention had been going for a year by then. Nothing had changed. So when you're uh, – so it's interesting to me in regard to, say, your new book, for example, if you want to talk about something like Marx and, you know, Marxism and, like, you know, redefining or, you know, critiquing capitalism, but you have to operate, obviously, clearly within – okay, maybe I'll put it my I'll, – I'll put it on me rather. Yeah, sure. I'm a white, mostly heterosexual, that's fine. rich man – Blah, 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 right? But I think that's fine. You can still be my comrade. I mean... Yes. So, but what is that process? Where do you step... Where is it your place to step in and where is it your place to step out? Like, I love what you said then about yeah, the apologies but, words, but without yeah, the money, it's not a real yeah, fucking apology. But I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, and right? I, I know. And it's sort of like, you know, and um, some um, Aboriginal Australian um, advocates... Um, people and activists have made the point to me that I have no business and that, you know, the sorry meant a lot to them and they found it very emotional and I accept that. And you should, you know, listen to others. I mean, I'm not very good at listening to others at the best of times, but, I mean, (laughs) you should, you know, I mean, more of a product of my incredibly high and irrational level of self-regard than, you know, kind of racism. Um, Although, you know, I mean, racism, you have to fight it within yourself all the time. Um, But so, yeah, I can't speak of, you know, experiences but um i can i guess what Uh, but i know what you mean i think i know what you mean will because this is a time of great like stop mansplaining and stop manspreading and you know and you can't speak for black people and you can't speak for lgbti people and you know i mean now there's these people online who you know i mean the whole you know the terrible thing that's happening in lgbtiqa communities is um you know they're kind of like getting really divided as well um, and there's sort of, you know, along class lines and along um, uh, uh, sort of like uh, philosophical lines, like there's some people who really believe I was born this way and then there's other people who are like, oh, it's acquired and learned behaviour and gender means nothing and sexuality means nothing and we're all on a spectrum and there's people like me saying, does it matter? Yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, and so there are these intense fights and I've been caught up in a few of them because I still consider myself part of like – the queer community or at least the queer writing community. Um, And, um, you know, like... But I think that's Fuck me, I've had some fights. Well, I mean, that's one of my areas where I love your writing because it's... To me, this is an issue where I'm like, that issue of whether someone's born that way or not affecting the yeah. argument in any sense is actually one of the things that you have written about a bit. And yeah, 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 yeah. Very and compelling. it's very interesting. But, I mean, let's just sort of go on because I think you've hit on something really interesting. Um, you know, are you entitled to talk about what you perceive as a particular injustice if you have not experienced that right. injustice yourself? Yes, of course you are. And, in fact, if you see an injustice and you think about that thing and you have some knowledge of it, then it's your responsibility as a journalist or a news analyst to do that. 
Um, and, um, you know, it's your responsibility to stay up all night on black coffee and read as much as you can, talk to your learned friends, ring academics, you know, it's, 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 you you know, you can't, you can't overlook that responsibility, but, and, but still I find that, you know, people have this, um, and I kind of understand it, this idea that, you know, you need to represent like if we had more people of colour on television, for example, this is not my argument but it's a popular yeah. argument, then there would be less racism. I'm kind of like, why don't you look at it the other way around? If we had less racism, then we would have more people of colour on television. Right. Do you really think that television is where it starts? Do you really think that journalism is where it starts? I mean, you know, I'm not saying that entertainment has no role and I'm not saying that I don't personally love it when I see um, somebody with whom I identify in certain cultural or physical ways on the TV. Um, and sort of I understand, especially for children, that that's important, but it's not the base, you know. I mean, the base is, um, you know, about the conditions of your everyday life and that affects the way you think um, about yourself and others um, and the way that you flourish more than anything. And we're all having this sort of conversation about who gets to speak, but we're sort of talking about very elite um, uh, areas so it's like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you're like, oh, you earn so little and, you know, you're right. But that is the reality of the market in which I work. Writers aren't um, paid a lot anymore. There's no revenue model. And you know you're, you know, lucky slash talented to get paid as much as you do in your particular area. Like there's a lot of, you know, comedians who get fuck all. Oh, um, yeah. And I mean, good comedians. And, yeah. Like, uh, good. And, and look. Amazing comedians. And overseas, like, particularly the majority of them. Like, yeah. I'll, I know a bunch of people who are equally, if not more talented than myself, yeah. who struggle by, f- for you know, to pay their rent and their bills and all okay. those sort of things. So, like, you, you, you know and I know that because we're white and we're both little Aussie bleeders, mm-hmm. you know, um, with kind of like, you know, working class roots, parents who worked with their hands and all that shit that we have, um, you know, that's, we didn't get to where we are purely because of merit, you know, the colour of our skin, you know, our family histories, um, luck, all of that, you know, not to diminish your great skill or, of course, mine. (laughs) Um, But I'm there. Right. And I'm, that's my job. And, um, I mean, I absolutely believe that a newsroom becomes better with, um, you know, a, a diversity of people and a diversity of views. Um, but, you know, I don't claim to speak on behalf of other people. I just um, try to describe large systems. And um, that is another interesting thing, actually, because I'm a lady. Um, it's kind of an unacceptable way for a lot of women to write. There's, there's a few women on the right or the sort of like neoliberal left who write that way you know they write um in the financial pages and uh stuff like that um you know there's reporters of course and political reporters um but you know even they will sort of like break out with a personal essay Mm. every now and then to kind of like reinforce (laughs) their femininity and this is the demand that is made of you know white women but more so of um women of colour or women with a disability um, in media right from your own experience. Um, And, um, you you know, so you will find, and, you know, if you have some industry insight, you'll find that many women of colour are actually coerced by their white editors into writing about their personal experience. And they'll be like, 
hey, I've got a PhD and I understand international relations and I have access to data and I don't want to talk about myself. I actually want to talk about systems. Um, And I've been fortunate enough and strangely all my – nearly all my editors are women – a few bloke editors as well. Um, but, you know, it's just accepted with my, all my editors that I don't write personal shit. Like I make a few jokes at my own expense right. or whatever. Um, but, you know, none of them expect me to write the heart-rending personal essay to prove a point. It's like, you know, do, do news analysis. Um, but I see that a lot of people of colour and, and, you know, women – are kind of corralled into writing about their personal experience. And so you get this thing and, you know, you get this like real joy out of reading that stuff. Um, and there's many people, including the faux intellectual Alain de Baton, um, <laughs> who says not a good introduction to philosophy, by the way. I don't – I mean, you know, if you start reading some of the things he recommends then you can ignore Alain. And, and so, look, I shouldn't be such an <laughs> asshole. Some of the time he gets things right. I actually watched one of his School of Life thing on Marx uh, and uh, just to see – and it's like, oh, you actually didn't get that completely wrong. Good on you. Um, Nisha, in my view, quite wrong. But I'm not a <laughs> Nisha expert. But anyway. but So he wrote a book about news about two or three years ago. Uh, yeah, I remember. And he's writing about, oh, what news needs to do to help the world be more compassionate is write personal stories. And I'm like, have you read a fucking newspaper right. lately? They are full of personal stories. Yeah. Like the internet is full of personal stories. Like all of our famous liberal feminists in Australia make their money out of writing personal stories Um, you know, writing about the abuse they receive, saying the abuse I receive is um, a good indication of what other women cop. Look, I mean, I've received pretty serious abuse um, by men I don't know um, for many years, actually. Um, Okay, it's an elite experience of abuse. I'm sorry, and it's nothing like the abuse that you're going to get working in sectors like childcare, you know, and remember we all pretty much have to fucking work, right. you know, and work's an important thing. So yes, uh-huh. you um, get problems at work, but why is your writing incessantly about the hate mail you receive? Um, why do you constantly write articles about uh, my oppression is proof that all women are oppressed. You know, why? Why are you courting this bullshit? Why won't you for once read a fucking book, step the fuck out of yourself, you know, acknowledge the intellectual traditions of feminism, which are very complex, um, and and write something beyond somebody threatened to rape me. I mean, yes, somebody's threatened to rape me too, of course. Um, but frankly, on the internet, that's now pretty standard. I mean, do you have a look at your Twitter mentions? Oh, I mean, well, you know, uh, the, do you, you may have seen the story about Liam and Ben from Triple J, who are the new Triple J breakfast hosts. Oh, yeah. Anyway, on Are You OK Day, they spoke about the yeah, you know, the death threats and stuff they'd been getting. and it's, uh, I didn't a, like that at all. Them speaking about it or the fact that... Uh, I thought it was fucking appalling. That, I mean, they're young kids, right? Yeah, they don't they're know. Kids. They're kids. They're, they're young kids. They don't know. What didn't you like about it? Tell me what you didn't like. Okay, well, sort of similar to what I was yep. saying before about our most popular feminists. And I understand, like, if you're a young lady, yep. you might not have kind of engaged with feminist thought before and this could be your gateway drug. But, you know, to kind of, like, think, oh, my experience is just like this famous w- w- women's experience is, is deluded in that, you know, say, oh, you know, the reason that Hillary Clinton needs to be president is that it will inspire women. No, your job as president is not to inspire. 
Right. Your job is to lose yourself and work for the people. You're a fucking public servant, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry, your job is not to... You, you really think in America, a country where six million households were emptied of their population, there are many, many more million empty homes in America um, than there are homeless people. Actually, something that happens here in Australia too. Right. You know, it doesn't make sense to me, right? You know, the city of Detroit's gone bankrupt. I mean, it's, you know, the, the whole place is divided 51% of the working population earn less than $30,000 a year, right? Their purchasing power is about the same as yep. ours in our dollar cents. Um, you know, Obamacare never really turned on for a lot of people. They're in ill health, you know. I mean, you, you, you so, you know, and you say that you want a president to inspire you. No, you want a president to fucking rebuild the middle class, you know, like save your fucking capitalism, you know, if you love it so much. So, you know, I mean, so these guys, what are their names again? Ben and Liam. Yeah, no, I listened to the piece and um, it, I have particular views about mental health mm-hmm. and I've been lucky enough to discuss them um, personally with um, Patrick McGorry. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, the... Australian the, of the Year, Patrick yeah, McGorry. Was he? Was he, I think? Probably, he Kippy should be. Have been at one like, stage. he's a great advocate yep. for mental health. And I wrote this piece about the, um, you know, Mental Health Week on the ABC and how I felt um, that they were sort of like, you know, making objects of people with kind of extreme mental ill health. You know, I mean, there's clearly people who are in no position to consent to being filmed, you know, and we're enjoying their fucking psychosis with our fucking scones, you Uh know. I mean, seriously. But apart from that, you know, you get all these celebrities on saying, well, I feel sometimes really anxious too and it can happen to anyone okay yes sure it can happen to anyone but if the anyone to whom it happens happens to be well to do or you know sort of like me kind of like educationally empowered and like you know able to talk a psychiatrist's price down and stuff you know i can work the system right right you know i can speak like a grown-up a lot of people you know i can speak the language of um the professional classes to a degree. And so, you know, I'm in a position um, because of my cultural privilege where I'm actually receiving pretty good mental health. I mean, I'm not a complete loony. It's just like, you know, garden variety, anxiety, depression. I mean, being a complete loony is absolutely fine, by the way, as long as you're getting, I mean, yeah, okay, I'm a bit of a loony. But anyway, so, you know, so, but I mean, you know, I personally know the struggles of people, particularly people with bipolar disorder, um, which is a fucking awful thing, you know, to get any kind of healthcare, even after a recent suicide attempt. And, you know, if you're well-to-do, you can get that care. Or if, like me, you're culturally empowered, you can probably convince somebody to give you that care. Um, if you're on, you know, a bad course of drugs or, you know, you were kind of like um, raised without sort of like any of the privileges that end up in you sort of like expressing yourself eloquently and what whatnot... You don't get those services because those services don't fucking exist, especially in remote Australia. And moreover, um, mental ill health, you know, the two biggest um, things being what I've been diagnosed with, which is anxiety and depression. I don't even like talking about my own fucking, you know, I mean, it's not that bad. Yeah, I mean, it's shit, but it's not that bad. Um, Like, it's fine. I manage it. I've managed it for a long time. But it's like, um, you know, so... um, uh, and, you know, my doctors manage it. Um, but, I mean, it's just, 
it's just such a nonsense to think that these experiences are universal and right. that your money doesn't make a difference. Of course it does. And, I mean, of course it, it, of course it makes a difference. And then, I mean, the other thing about mental ill health is that mental ill health can itself produce poverty because you can't work. Right. And, um, you know, and 40% of the um, Australian workforce is now in a position where um, they're either sort of casual or, um, or, or contract or, um, or self-employed like me. And so, you know, you can't, you don't really have recourse under the, the Fair Work Act then. So you do, you've got this large part of the population that do not have legal recourse um, if they get sacked for mental ill health. And, you know, frankly, you know, why wouldn't you be sacked under capitalism if you're an unproductive labourer? Right. Like that just makes sense. So, uh, in the same way as it makes sense to sack a pregnant woman under capitalism, it does. It absolutely makes. I'm not sense. saying you should. I'm just saying it makes sense by the theory that you no, are. no, no. Like if you think that you know we need to increase productivity yep. and you know and we need growth, you know this word that was invented by economists in the 60s, um, uh, you know it makes sense. And there's a news story in the last few days. I don't know if you saw it about a young woman in Canberra who was um, let go um, as a staff member of a... Did you read about this? Uh, yeah, she was, was she a contractor for the... Yeah, she was yeah. an independent contractor independent for contractor. an events yeah. um, firm in, um, you know, they did kids' parties and stuff in Canberra. Yeah. Okay, so Canberra, as you know, you went to school there. I grew up there. Very progressive town, yep. right? Like very small town as well. And also the only territory in Australia where any gay um, same-sex marriage ceremony has been performed. Yep. Um, so, you know, Canberra, not relatively not a bad place to be a homo, right? Um, you know, people... That was actually one of their slogans originally. Yeah, that yeah. Go with. Not a bad place to be a homo. <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so actually, under the rules of capitalism, this woman was quite right to let this young girl um, identified as Madeline to go because this young woman had publicly posted that it was okay to vote no. She yeah. reposted some kind of meme or something. Yes, you know, like everyone should be able to express their views in their leisure time and not have it affect their work in, you know, a perfect utopian, impossible idea of capitalism. But the reality of capitalism is that, yeah, that young woman might have been really fucking bad for her business yeah. in Canberra. So actually under the rules of capitalism, she was right to let it go. So this sort of relates to, um, you know, mental health in, you know, the, the rights of the worker and, and what have you. And then, I mean, insecure work itself creates. Oh, um, I, well, mean, I, I mean, if you have an issue with like, you know, mental health and you don't have a job where you get, say, sick pay, for example, like you, where you yeah. can actually literally go, well, I need to have a day or a couple of yeah. days or whatever. And it's built into the system. You're just, a, you work, you get paid or you don't yeah. get paid. Then you can fall out of the yeah. system and out of a life very, very quickly. Yeah. I mean, in my depression and anxiety, I think is very much, you know, has been the product of work that I've done in the past. And, um, you know, I mean, there are people who I think are, you know, um, perhaps they have um, mental um, ill health, which is inborn. Mm. It's not the case with, with me. It's experiential. It's reactive. I, this is what I believe. This is my experience of it. And this was a distinction that... Um, psychiatry and medical science made for you know thousands of years um up until 1994 you know and 1994 you know the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental illness the mm. big document in america that gps pay attention to psychiatrists a bit cynical about it they try to get in to see a psychiatrist i had to beg my doctor um my psychiatrist to see me um and it took a long time but it's like um uh, you know so they then made no distinction between um, that depression that arises with 
apparent social cause and that kind of depression that, that didn't. And that had a whole range of uh, ongoing effects. I mean, no one really kind of like, no single conspiracy happened, no one decided, but there's a whole lot of terrible effects in that a lot of the research becomes um, uh, based around drugs and do these work and then, you know, research into why some people seem to be depressed from a very young age for no apparent reason. You know, that research was stalled because of this ideology and, you know, so, you know, all of that. So, yeah, mental health is a great, um, I mean, it's actually a really fascinating topic. And so, you know, I was talking to um, Patrick McGorry who knows much more than, you know, anybody else. He's a genuine authority. And I wrote this thing about, you know, uh, uh, Mental Health Week on the ABC and sort of all these celebrities like um, the chaps on Triple J, Liam and Better Jonesy, sure. Knackers and the Vag, whatever yep. they're called. Knackers and the Vag, I believe. Uh, yeah. It's just <laughs> <laughs> this is what Mikey and I wanted to be called, actually. Um, <laughs> Knackers and the Vag, coming at you in the morning. Right, ten car pile up. Um, and uh, you remember. Um, and... Um, you know, so I did sort of this big thing about how, you know, awareness uh-huh. and the need to reduce the stigma is fucking ridiculous right. because, you know, talk to most people who are afflicted by mental ill health who are usually in, um, you know, um, the lower end of the income distribution, uh, removing the stigma, least of their fucking right. problems. Um, getting Lifeline to answer the phone, you know, and they do good work at Lifeline, of course, you know, and try and call the number, um, et cetera. Do we need to do that thing where we say call Lifeline? I don't know, Google it. Um, here's what I will say about Lifeline. I had an instance recently to call Lifeline and uh, and I – one of the things that I, people may, may not know about is if you have someone who is going through something and they are not capable of themselves ringing Lifeline mm. – Lifeline will do a very fucking good job of having a chat with you about perhaps what you could be doing in that yeah, situation. That's what I was in, and a... I had such a great. Anyway, the person yeah. I was with ended up then talking to the per... like yeah. once he'd given me some guidance. But they do an amazing job. But it can take forever to get through to anybody. Yeah, I for know. A start. Yeah, I've had and the same And that's what you're saying about yeah. practical, like the practical yeah. nature of it. And the thing about these people is, once they answer the f- phone call, they'll talk to you for as long as it takes. Yeah, for yeah. that person to need. So they need but, re- practical yeah, resources. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, Lifeline is just, you know, p- part of the problem. I exactly. mean, you know, there, there are people who, with whom I've personally spoken for a- academics um, yeah. uh, in writing about mental health. And um, they say, well, there is a huge connection between insecure housing um, and mental ill health. Mm. You know, surprise, surprise, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, impeded rights at work. And mental health and longer working hours and being away from your family and the people you love and mental ill health and, you know, all of that stuff. And so, you know, it needs to be um, a more kind of like wholehearted uh, approach to, um, you know, what we regard as as the commons, what we demand from, you know, the society for it to function better. Um, And, you know, like if people have got enough to eat and are secure about where they live, Yeah, maybe then they can start in a few months worrying about the stigma. But, you know, the stigma for, you know, and, you know, plenty of people kind of play on this and make, you know, and I know that they're genuinely mentally unwell, but they sort of write these emotional first-person pieces about what it's like to be depressed. I mean, I myself wrote a book along those lines, you know, and it was helpful for some people, but, I mean, it's nothing like, um, you know, actually actual advocacy 
and actually saying, where is the system failing? And I believe that, you know, the ABC really didn't address that in the two mental health weeks that I've forced myself to watch. And these young chaps on Knackers in the Badge on Triple J, um, I, I went, you know, I was very, very frustrated, especially when I saw that people say, oh, they're so brave. Okay, Knackers in the Veg, what you're encountering, you know, and I've been exactly where you are, 22, working on Triple J breakfast and, you know, encountering like people saying that, you know, I was a ugly fat dyke and, you know, and you're too ugly to rape and, you know, and actually have had death threats and have had stalkers and, um, have had my life a bit fucked up by the whole experience, yeah. frankly. But what use is it for me? And I have done this in the past, you know. I mean, what use was it for anyone? Um, you know, it was just completely self-serving for me to talk about it and talk about it. Um, and, you know, I did that. I was doing that up until the age of 30. It's like my experience is everybody's experience. But, you know, no, it was not. I was a very privileged little girl who got to do fucking Triple J breakfast, like in the fucking grunge 90s, you know, like I got to meet Nirvana. Like, sh- shit, you know, I had fucking VIP passes all the time and, um, like, I hung out with L7 and, you know, they tried to fuck my cute gay male friend and it was awesome, you right. know. Um, and it was just like, you know, and like I hung out with the girls from Veruca Salt and it was just like, oh, my God, it was this life of incredible privilege. I was sort of like fucking right there for all that stupid music and, you know, that stupid time and you know, got to meet Paul Keating and all that crap. So, no, Helen's struggles were not like everybody's struggles and I was being very liberal uh-huh. in that I sort of presumed that my my real experience of, you know, of, of life was everybody's experience and I meant well. And I guess I should be a bit more patient with others because I did it. You know, I did it myself. I wrote a fucking book about it. Um, and, um, you know, my struggle with anxiety and depression is your struggle with anxiety and depression. So I do not think that knackers in the vag... Um, did a bad thing for their age but I do think that you know management should have been there to trip them up and develop um, a policy on um, mental ill health and think maybe a little more about talking about the broader experience because from what I heard and I did hear the spot they were talking about reactions to life and having a hard time at work and they are you okay day is purportedly about people who are experiencing mental ill health they are not experiencing mental ill health. They're having a hard time with people resenting their privilege. Um, and, you know, like, and, you know, bless them. I don't think, I mean, they sound nice, you know, like they sound nice and they sound good. And they're probably oh, but, but again, again you're really... talking about a, a broader, it's not like they're the one example of people doing this. You're talking no, about it's just this, a very is recent a, one this is a broad thing that is across our society now. Yeah, and it's completely accepted by, you know, ABC bosses speak from your experience and let's not actually kind of like cover the intervention in a fair way and let's not forget that it was the television program Late Line that um, described um, in a very questionable way, according to some people, um, the scale of the problem of child abuse in Aboriginal communities. And there are people um, who have, you know, written papers on how the television program Late Line, probably, you know, in a good and compassionate way, focused in 2006 
on what they perceive to be problems of widespread abuse in Aboriginal communities. And it was not long after Late Line started discussing these things that a report was commissioned and it wasn't long after that that the emergency response occurred. So media does influence policy to some degree, doesn't it? And, um, you know, so it it's like you can't fucking, you know, get a few Aboriginal people on Q&A once in a while to represent on behalf of their community, you know, all are citizens um, and, you know, all deserve to have their specific problems addressed by the national broadcaster. And I don't believe that that is always the case. And I probably just critique the ABC more often because I expect more of the ABC mm. And it's probably not going beyond, you know, its editorial guidelines or anything like that. It's just sort of doing what media of the present does, which is um, appearing to investigate or appearing to be intellectual. And, you know, like there's shows like Background Briefing on Mm -hmm. Radio National, which I fucking love, you know. I mean, and there's still some great stuff. Um, And, you know, what you do is not repugnant either. Um, (laughs) I'll I'll take that. I'm going to put that on the front of the book. Not repugnant. Not repugnant. Uh, Helen Razor. To um, be honest, I've I've had worse. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. And I I still love the idea of Triple J. I'm way too old to listen to it, but I love the idea of Triple J. And if it's working properly, properly, then you should be too old to listen to it. But But, I'm interested in this idea, because, I mean, I'm conscious of the fact that we have some limits on our time. Um, How long have we been fucking talking? An hour and a half already. Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, how long have we been talking? (laughs) About three hours. But on time about an hour and a half so yeah edit the shit out uh, of it no mate. i'm not editing any of this out this has all been brilliant but i want to it has not i want to bring it back to i did have two drinks earlier and the I'm book not a, a big bit, woman and i want to bring it back to the idea of because you've been talking about systems uh, you know the personal versus the system you know the idea of you know talking about systems about the way that society is structured like that's what this book comes back to a lot is about you know the literal structure of you know Con- what well I, I don't want to put words in your mouth I want you to talk to me about what what is the book about like why why did you want to write it and what did you think you were going to achieve from writing okay well as I said um I started started receiving communications um from people I didn't really know um who you know were people that you know had at least a filament of my respect in media such as yourself you know not repugnant has a filament of my respect no, good. no this is all gold <laughs> i'm taking all this um uh, but uh moreover i started getting um correspondences from uh young quite young people uh people who were entering the workforce and um uh you know, sort of people who had been led to believe for all their lives that you can make it if you try and they're like, yeah, this is not what I'm living. You know, sort of like 80% of millennials rent and can't see any, you know, future possibilities. So they're um, for me. And to get back, you know, we were kind of talking about identity politics before um, and how, you know, there is this view that you can't talk about a particular injustice unless you have experienced that injustice. And really I haven't experienced that much injustice in my life, you know, seriously. I fucking live in Australia. I'm white, Jesus. You know, I live in a nice house. But, um, you know, so I still – so, um, 
you know, there are some problems that I have with identity politics. You know, the idea that if we have a woman president, then things will be better for women. Ha! Huh. Um, you know, seen um, what's going on in Myanmar at the moment. Um, and uh, poor to Maggie Thatcher. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, seriously. You know, I mean, the feminist response you, you get is that, well, they were just acting like men. Well, at what point won't they? At what point will this innate feminine goodness come out and save the world? Fuck off! Um, is my view. And... Um, you, you, you know, so so you, so you have this idea that you know, uh, um, in um, you, you, so I get these 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 things from you know kids really who are um, you know I'm in my very very late forties, um, and so I think everyone's a kid. I think you're a kid, um, but you know I'm, I'm in, in my mid forties. But people in their twenties. Um, you know, wanting to know and asking me for reading lists. And, sh- and so I thought I was going to write like a long Facebook post. Okay. And then I read more marks again. And it was like, yeah, no, it's probably going to be an e-book. It's probably going to be about 10,000 words. And then I'm like, oh, no, I, I'm going to see if my publisher's interested. And strangely, they were. Um, and there has been um, a rise in interest for kind of like um, left-wing, hard left-wing economic texts. And so, you know, they thought that it wouldn't be a terrible idea, um, especially, you know, I agreed to take a smaller um, advance because it was a passion project um, and it meant that I could stop, you know, like answering emails <laughs> as well because <laughs> you get something from a like 22-year-old and, um, you know, and they've gone to all of the trouble of finding your email address and they're like emailing you because like I never answer messages on Facebook because um, I never go on. I'm banned from it. Like my partner's banned me from social media. Like anything I write on social media is posted by a third party. <laughs> I'm really, I mean, occasionally I might have a glass of bubbles and like break into the computer and you can tell. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise for my mental well-being, it's best uh, that I yeah. just don't participate. Um, you seem to be quite sane about the whole social media thing. Yeah, no, I very I'm much. I'm shithouse at yeah. it. I take it all very personally and get very, I'm like a child. Um, and so, 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 you know, it was this, it was this passion uh, project and, um, you know, like I don't think Marx is a god and I, you know, and there are, Problems, of course, with any theory um, devised in the 19th century, and it doesn't completely describe um, the conditions of the present era. But no one has ever sat down um, over a lifetime and written such an account of the mode of production, like the way we organise our survival. And the basic idea with Marx is that the way that any community, family or society um, organises its survival, its basic needs, you know, food, water, shelter all of that, like those crude material things and the way that they're organised influences us to an extraordinary degree. Now, starting in the 1980s, really, or the 1970s, really, yeah, in um, there were two things that happened. And one was, um, you know, identity politics. Um, you know, we want more representation. Our group wants more representation um, in academic circles. And there was a real kind of like, you know, doing away with Marxist theory on the left. Um, and that's sort of called the cultural turn. And then you get philosophers like you've heard of Michel Foucault, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of talking more about the cultural than the material. Um, and, you know, Michel Foucault had some very nasty things to say about Marx. I don't think the two are incompatible, but, you know, like, whatever. Shut up, Helen. Uh, who's 
don't think that Marx and Foucault were incompatible. <laughs> I fucking hate me too. Like, what do you think it is like to live in this head? It's not fun. I mean, oh. I come to no good conclusions. Just and- to reassure you though, Helen, we're, uh, we're an hour 40 into this podcast. If people are still listening. <laughs> no one is. We're well, just, I, I this think, is pure masturbation firstly, at this point. I think they are. But secondly, if if they are put turned off, by, like, they've made it this far. This is where you should really lean into it. <laughs> this is where oh, don't say really- lean in. Um, don't say, don't, don't, don't say lean in. Another example of like the individual overcoming the society. The point is the individual can't overcome the society. Right. Like it doesn't matter how much personal empowerment or chutzpah or belief in yourself you have. It doesn't matter how many bad individuals you call out. It doesn't matter how you act. Cause I mean, like there's this huge fixation on the moment on, you know, acting like a good Samaritan, yeah. like intervene if you see violence. No, sometimes it's a fucking bad idea to intervene right. if you see violence. Certainly, you know, call the constabulary, um, you know, yell if you're at a safe distance or something but I mean Christ there's no proper way to be a fucking human you know I mean you like don't hurt people obviously and all that shit but I mean you know all of these kind of like individual moral prescriptions I see in the so-called left of the present this sort of stuff has been happening since the 1970s but the really awesome thing is that not all of that is bad and, you know, and there are, you know, you, we were talking privately before about how there's certain things that are now unacceptable in comedy. Um, and we kind of like agree that that's kind of a good thing, right? In general. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing, but yeah. it's sort of like, you know, it's like I like, because I mean, for years and years, like I went to comedy festival and reviewed it for the age. And so I'd see like maybe a hundred comedy shows a year and like, man, I got sick of jokes about fat chicks and stuff. And I kind of love that people will heckle comedians. I mean, I know that you guys don't like hecklers, but sometimes you fucking deserve it. Um, I, and don't, I don't mind a heckler. Yeah. I yeah. think I, I think that I have a, I don't mind, I don't like a, just a drunken yeller, but I'm yeah. a, a heckle. Yeah, yeah. I don't quite like someone to pull me up on a point. I'm happy with them yeah. being pulled up on a point. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> but, the, but this sort of emerging consciousness that you, yeah. you, you know, that, um, that, um, you know, punching down is you know going to alienate people and the fact that it you know uh, a certain part of the kind of like so-called leftist hegemony has decided these things are unacceptable to say well that's just one sort of culture kind of correcting a part of its problems i don't necessarily see it as political correctness gone mad so you know i mean i see millennials as this incredible force in that they've sort of grown up a lot of the time like naturally um to them um believing that you know racism is something you've got to call out on yourself if you're a white person and um you know and and you should be um you know proud if you're gay and you know whatever whatever all that stuff is good but you know at this time it's kind of quite amazing because there's these children of identity politics who are now entering a workforce where they have very few rights at work they may owe a lot for their university degrees. They may have studied, in many cases, for vocations that no longer exist. Mm-hmm. They are the first generation who whose lifespan is um, predicted to be shorter than their parents. They're the first generation in in some generations in Australia who are not going to be financially, um, not only not going to be financially better off, but poorer than their parents. And and they have. Um, the good parts of identity politics, they have this kind of like, you know, slightly revolutionary revulsion for capitalism. I never thought in my lifetime that I would see the possibility for an entire generation um, or parts of that generation to really get the shits and get some solidarity. And the really interesting thing with that um, lady in Canberra, young lady in Canberra who lost her job because of her conservative 
political views is that even in The Guardian, um, you know, otherwise known as the guardian of the neoliberal left, they actually did a piece on industrial relations and they actually said that, you know, and, and um, uh, Jericho, who has been a very, in my view, you know, neoliberal economist, um, is actually sort of saying mild things like, hmm, maybe there should be some legal IR intervention in this nation because it would be better for the economy. I mean, fucking the economy, you know, better for people. Um, I, but, of course, it's very important how you, you gear the economy if we're sort of going to live in the way um, that we do. So, I mean, I was absolutely amazed when I saw The Guardian actually look at work, especially work for young people and how many young people are casualised and how many of them have a shit fucking deal. And you actually get so like these identity politics kind of like liberal people now actually thinking, yeah, the way I survive and um, the way I organise my life and, oh, my God, the way our entire economy is organised is not working. And maybe it's got some internal contradictions. So if you're starting to have those thoughts, and it's very difficult not to if you're um, a millennial with enough leisure to think. Right. if you're starting to have those thoughts, well, the guy, unfortunately, that you have to go to is Marx. I don't think he's a god. He did have a very nice turn of phrase and he was kind of brilliant. But that's the guy you go to because that's the guy that spent the most time thinking about it. And then, you know, you can take the bits of Marx that you like um, and, um, you know, go to post-Marxists and, and what have you. So, you know, again, I just sort of really want to emphasise that, um, you know, I don't say I'm a Marxist with any sort of sense of pride or you know, yearning to um, belong or mark myself as a contrarian or anything like that. It's just, um, you know, it's not to cause offence. It's not to provoke. It's simply to say, yeah, keep going back to this stuff. And, you know, maybe I have the acquired some of the skills as a relatively popular communicator um, to put some of the ideas, some of the really basic ideas down, you know, in between cock jokes and, um, you know, and maybe this will turn you on to another way of thinking. So firstly, there's some really good cock jokes. So let's not, the, you know, just go by those. But uh, so where do you see us going though now? Because like, I mean, obviously the state of the world Who now, knows, we're, we're having these big debates right now about the very nature of work itself. I mean, that's why I we're think... We're not though. I well, mean, they're just no, beginning. No, but I mean, the people that you're talking about are, as you said, the kids coming out realizing yeah. I've got these massive debt for a course I may never actually use. I'm never going to be able to afford a house, even if I do get a job. And is there even going to be jobs? Like, yeah. is a robot going to be doing what it was that well, I was? Well, I mean, very likely, doing? and that's one of the sort of the the joys of capitalism. I mean, Marx was a great fan of the productive capacity of capitalism and a lot of kind of more humanitarian socialists have a problem with that. It's like, oh, why do you have to say that we have to go through this necessary phase of capitalism? Why can't we just end it now? Um, And, um, you know, Marx made no predictions about the future um, and I will make no predictions about the future being somewhat less smart than Marx, Um, but I don't know what's going to happen. I just see a chance um, for um, young people to stop thinking only in a cultural sense um, and not thinking in a material sense and sort of doing things on the radio is like my pain is your pain and it's all about how individuals should be- behave and if only we're compassionate as individuals. This is a very Christian idea, by the way. Um, not that that's bad. I mean, I actually think the sort of commandment to love thy neighbour is not a terrible one at all. Um, but, I mean, you know, you probably feel the same, right? I mean, I sort of find that this whole thing about, oh, people are narcissistic, people aren't compassionate enough. 
I feel and, you know, sort of like I talk a lot, obviously, and I enjoy talking to people and um, uh, finding out what they think. So, I mean, who knows? But for me and for others um, to whom I pose the question, compassion, well, it's a problem not to have it, generally speaking. I mean, right, do you have this experience where you're at the shops and you see somebody struggling in some way and you just feel this deep sadness and need to help them and then you sort of second guess yourself it's like oh i won't help them because then i'll be being condescending and i'll ruin their fucking day oh my god people they break my heart right uh-huh. happens to me yeah. all, the, all time. the time it's like you you know i feel sorry for my neighbor or you know, who, whoever uh, you know, this is mother Teresa's idea help the person closest to you right no, the person closest to me, my next door neighbours, they both work in the finance industry. They don't need my help. They don't need your help. Really well, they nice should be helping you, really. Well, they they got a really they get a really nice car. You know, it's like it's no, don't help the person next to you, but get in the mode where you can even help. Right. Um, you know, a young conservative who says to vote no on Facebook because you have solidarity in the sense that you, as workers, as and even if you're not a worker, if you're unemployed, you're still performing a very important right. economic fun- function. Or well, now if you're underemployed because you're keeping wages low and yeah. profits high, you know, like, you know, we need unemployed oh, yeah. and underemployed people under capitalism. We wouldn't survive without them um, because, you know, if, if there was full employment, well, nobody right. would be making fucking any money, right? Um, and, you know, it's sort of funny. You just speak to this uh, to kids about this stuff and it's no longer really taught at universities. You get a little bit of the so-called cultural marks. I mean, this whole idea of cultural marks. He's a materialist. He's a historical materialist. He's interested in the material, not the fucking cultural. Cultural Marxist is bullshit. It doesn't exist. Stop saying cultural <laughs> Marxist, Corey. <laughs> like, read a fucking book. Like, before you criticise my man Marx, make sure you understand him. You know, and it's like, and this is what, and I mean, I don't claim to understand Marx fully because a lot of the ideas are very complex and a lot of people are not going to have time to read all three volumes of Capital, you know, even though Engels wrote the last two, really. Um, You know, you're not going to have the time. But I mean, I was on that show, The Drum, the other Uh day. Julia Bed, very, like, genuinely nice lady. She is a nice lady. Like, genuinely good human. Um, And she was very, very kind to um, invite me on her program to talk about the book. (laughs) <laughs> the co-panelist is not so kind. There's one dude there, actually. Um, he's in the Liberal Party. But I found out that he had done um, uh, a critique of the neo-Marxist Karl Polanyi as his PhD thesis. I'm like, wow, I love Polanyi. We can have a really good talk. Right. And he didn't say, like, um, you know, he wasn't permitted to say a thing. I just got one old bloke kill something i can't remember his name saying oh marxism that's ridiculous and this woman from the australian financial review saying what about marx that's ridiculous you're trying to get attention what i should have said to her you're on this show all the time and you're telling me i'm trying to get attention isn't that kind of like like bizarre thing to say on a panel show we're both here trying to get attention but they just sort of dismissed it out of hand right and so sort of i I ask her um you know well have you read marx some a long time ago so you're critiquing it without having read it you know i mean you know that you know some of his insights are even used by neoliberal economists right and she's like it's just silly and you're just trying to get attention and um you know and so and this is how you get shut down and i found for a, for a long time on the on the liberal left it was the same 
Um, and, you know, even some Marxists, because like Trotskyists in particular, I mean, Leon, great guy, right? Don't get me wrong. Trotskyists are wonderful people, but they have this idea that you can lure people into Marxism by, you know, going to their, you know, you, know, you always see the groups at the same sec, you yep. know, those old yep. socialists. I know exactly who And you're they're at about. every fucking thing. Yep. The, every march. <laughs> you know, and they think eventually that they can convince people um, to the material rather than the cultural view. Uh-huh. I don't know how many recruits they get that way. I mean, seriously. Um, so, you know, I'm not part of um, a movement and, you know, the proper Marxists in Australia don't like me much um, because I cheapen Marxism or something um, or I'm an asshole, which is true. Um, but, you know, the thing, the, 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 the thing really is, um, uh, you know, apart from all the... Helen wants to change the world and make it fairer for everybody. It's more like it's not that and it's not about even compassion for my fellow human being. It's more like, my God, all these accidents of evolution and all of this incredible productive capacity of humans and we're fucking killing ourselves, like materially. And we're still pretending that the material world doesn't exist and we're not addressing what we need to. I mean, I don't even really go into climate change at all in the book i mean there's much better books that you can read on on that topic i mean you know klein didn't do um a, a bad job with this changes everything and then there was like the the what is it the the tropic of chaos that's another good one but you know so i don't even really go into that but we're killing i mean you know i mean i don't want to sound like a a, a dick but i mean we're fucking killing shit well i mean all you have to do is pay some attention to know that's the case though yeah i mean like i mean that's that's I, that's the thing that i don't quite understand is you, you cannot like unsee the effect that the worst excesses like even if you're a person who believes you know as you explain in your book you know it's certainly to a degree that i didn't understand previously you know that no, marx thanks, you know had this like idea of yeah you know, that at least the, an aspect of i well, the way i always explain it to people is like there's an aspect of capitalism that can move a third world economy into a, like a first world economy, just to use those terms for the simplicity of the argument. Although it has not. No, but but, but yeah. you know that it's, I it's elected not to. Yes, but I understand <laughs> the happened. idea, right? Like is like this is the thing that can do that. But unfortunately, what it ends up doing is really serving one small, you know, like the more wealth goes to the smaller amount of people over and over and over and over and over again. It, yes, and this changes it, over time. Right. right. I, I mean, and you know about Keynes, right? Yes. Yeah. So this is a guy, um, you know, a you know a liberal, a good liberal economist who wrote in the the nineteen thirties a book called The General Theory, and um, so you know he's sort of like let's save capitalism, you know, by growing out a, yes. a middle class, and so his theories were adopted for a short period, and it saved capitalism. There are many alternative views of that. I mean, I like to go with the no, the communists made Franklin. D. Roosevelt so frightened that he actually started giving the people more wealth. Um, you know, so, and you know, the New Deal is kind of like the model that was okay. adopted the so, world over. So it grew, it grew the middle class, welfare, mm. unemployment benefits, um, uh, um, and uh, infrastructure, you know, and like, you know, six million jobs he announced on the radio in the middle of the Great Depression. I mean, you know, I mean, really what sort of changed the American economy was dropping two nuclear bombs on populations. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's what really, you know, made America great. Um, you know, the only country insane enough to unleash that fucking power on living people twice. Mm. They didn't even need to do it once. They'd already won the war, but they did it twice. 
And, um, you know, that, you know, was a threshold moment in history. And it's, you know, I mean, America protects um, its wealth with an arsenal. Right. And now America is a country that um, protects its wealth from its citizens with an arsenal. I mean, the very weapons um, that were used and, um, you know, the armoured personnel carriers in Afghanistan are now used on, on populations, especially black people. Um, you know, I mean, like... It's insane. Have you seen those fucking tanks? That the, yes. poli- the police force is militarised. You know, rich people are living in gated communities. Milton Friedman, you know, the famous yeah. neoliberal economist, his grandson is building a fucking island off the coast of Tahiti. It's this libertarian, like, you know, capitalist dream fest that any billionaire or centi-millionaire can buy a bit of. Like, he's actually building land. Like, right. how this is sort of legal, uh, you know, is just, I mean, beyond me. I mean, and Milty's grandson, what a guy. And, you know, so, like, people are coming up with this kind of, like, new Keynesianism because even though it's been 10 years now since the global financial crisis, I didn't answer your question before about how it didn't affect us in Australia. That was for a number of reasons. Well, yeah. Um, but but my, actually, my ad, like, and look, we have to finish up anyway. Yeah, we so, do. But, so let me ask you this. Cause I could China talk, and Wayne Swan. I could talk answers. to you forever, firstly, about all of this and for, about a million other things that we never, ever got to. But because your book's out and because people can go and read, you know... A, or yeah. just, you know, don't have to buy my book. Read Mark's. No, it's well, a fr- it's available here's free I, online. Here's what I would say. Read your book first. I, I certainly Steal think, one. Well, I mean, that's a very Marxist thing. No, no, that's <laughs> no not, I'm no, just being really. a dick. But no, please, buy, I need the yeah, money. Yeah, really. Yeah, no, buy one. We, we're still operating in the capitalist system at the moment, guys. So until until the revolution comes and everything's fixed, buy a copy of but Helen's book. If, if, if you... But then go and read your own stuff. And yeah, of course, that's what it's all about. But what do you see? What would be your hope? Is there something that you are hopeful about that could change, you know, to actually genuinely change the way that we're looking at the nature of work and the nature of society and work in relation to society? Well, I guess, you know, I mean, to be a pessimist about it, probably more, um, you know, um, powerful, wealthy, white people need to be afflicted by the effects of climate change before <laughs> before anything right. happens. But then again, they just were, and so nothing uh, no, nothing happened. But I don't know what the future is. Right. I, I, I don't know what the future is. I just see a possibility for change. Um, and to ignore the evidence, I mean, everybody talks about the threat of, you know, the rising f- fascists, you know, but, you know, what they don't see, and, you know, of course those people are awful, but, you know, they're a symptom. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, what I see is uh, a cure also happening at the same time. I mean, you know, more than 100,000 young people, mostly young people, um, and some old comrades too, you know, joined um, the Labour Party in Britain to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. Like, he's not an extreme socialist. He's just a Keynesian. But, like, these guys are... um, But, you know, he actually did say that Marx was an excellent economist. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so these kids are doing it. And then Mélenchon in France... Um, you know, in the Insoumis party, and he wanted a 100% marginal tax rate on the wealthy in France, like 100%. By the way, Franklin D. Roosevelt, many people regard him as the greatest ever president, 94%, you know, right. high marginal tax rate on, on the wealthy to, right. you know, appease the communist unions and good on you communist unions. Um, and so, you know, and we have Syriza, okay, they're fucked up, but, you know, they still got into power twice in two elections in Greece, um, Podemos in Spain, um, even, you know, Nicolas 
Nicola Sturgeon in the in in the Scottish Nationalist Party, and of course Bernie Sanders. And hey, little Lee Rhiannon, I'm looking at you. I'm not I'm not minding the cut of your jib at all, baby. Let's have a talk. Um, but you know, we don't have the harsh economic conditions in Australia here yet. Right. Um, thanks to China in large part. Yeah. Um that um, people in those countries that I just described, so we won't have the harsh economic reaction, but young people are finding themselves very dizzy um, and they know, you know, and they're not going to sort of just accept, be flexible and agile and innovative for very much longer. So what's going to happen? I don't know because our trade unions, um, with very few exceptions, are a fucking joke. Right. Do you belong to the MEAA? You probably do. I do. Okay. Do you ever read the newsletters that they send you? Look, I, first... they have a CEO. They don't even have a fucking general secretary. Like I belong to, of course, because I yeah. feel that I have to join a well, union, I, yeah. and you don't have to say anything about it, right? No, that's this is. But like, I mean, I, I, t- I belong literally, and I've been a member of the MEAA for since I've been in the end. Like literally, yeah, sure, and because I believe good. in unions. Yeah, I right? believe in unions. But, but the MEAA do no. doesn't seem to believe in no, unionism. And I've They're sent terrible. them so many They're emails saying, you know, I've got some ideas You because I'm very arrogant, mm. you know, and like I never think that no one – why would anyone possibly not be interested in me? Like because I'm really egocentric, right? Mm. And which is why I've now been talking to you for three days straight. That's good. And it's like, if yeah, people but, are still listening, they yeah, I mean, love you. <laughs> <laughs> or they're self-harming. Um, yeah, you know. Um, but, I mean, I think, well, this is my union yeah. and this is – and, you know, I'm a communist lady right. and I believe that there's power in a union even if they don't. And I sort of keep saying, well, you know, you're not representing us freelancers at all and we're, you know, a really – you know, I mean, they, they have a package and whatever, but so, like, what are you going to do for me? And it's like, oh, you've got insurance benefits. And so I'm like, I don't want to be part of the – you know, I fucking don't care about that financialized shit. Right. And, you know, like, it's what I want – is for you to stop sending me emails about how to empower women in media. Like, you know, and they invite me to these, like, workshops with Tracy Spicer or whatever to make me feel better about being a woman. And I tell them, if I were any more fucking empowered in my self-expression, somebody would put me in fucking jail and sedition (laughs) charges. You know, I mean, like, actually, if anyone is still listening at this point, like, you know, like, I have a filter problem and I'm angry and, um, you know, a little bit, mad like I'm conscious of this I'm conscious that I'm a bit of a weirdo I don't mean to be it's just what happened this is the broken human before you who who was cultivated by certain circumstances so I know like I'm not to you know everybody's taste but but I, I I also know that you know there should be power in a union and I should stand shoulder to shoulder with my comrades and I know that there's people like you you know powerful people in the entertainment industry who would fucking go out you know, you would go out on strike, wouldn't you? Yeah, of course. I mean, well, of you, course. You know, you would fucking suspend shit, um, you know, if we got together. And and it's – but it's just like all about empowering me as a woman. Right. Like, no, 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 no. Do not empower me as an individual or as a part of an identity category. Like, represent me and hear my fucking concerns. Yeah. And my concerns are – that I have to work for about 60 hours a week and I don't get any super and I'm not getting any younger. I've probably got about 10 good fucking productive years left in me. What the fuck am I going to do when I'm old? Right. 
You know, are you going to find a like a home for old leftist ratbags for me? Like, what's going to happen? And so, you know. I mean, by the way, that's a good idea. It is like a home for old leftist ratbags. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, just put some cameras in there. We could all argue with each other in the good Marxist tradition. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. That is a retirement plan. That could be an ABC. You could have different wings. You could have like the Maoist wing and the. You know, the Leninist vanguard wing and the, and the Menshevik wing and, you know, and the, uh, you know, like, um, <laughs> um, yeah, but, but, and we could all argue yeah. um, and about, you know, whether kind of like racism is just as much of an immutable, powerful force as capitalism and it'd be awesome and we would die arguing and that would be good for me. Um, but um, so, you, you um uh, sorry. I, okay. You know what? We should, we have to. We should just. Anyway, we should like, just. I have to go and do a gig. Yeah. So, so, like, so the future. The future is not in unions. The yes. future is not in unions unless unions actually start listening to their right. uh, their young or their contracted members, people like me who are not represented by the Fair Work Act, who don't have recourse um, to their right to a living, to their means of survival. Um, and you know, also remember there was a time that unions used to like you know. Um, work in solidarity with international movements like the the workers the black right. workers in in, uh, in in South Africa that was how I first like met a union I used to because I grew up in Canberra I used to do my I uh, used to wag from school and 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 sit outside that's how old I am because I used to sit outside the high commission and you know keep a vigil um, and I'm sure that they were terrified by the sight of a 15 year old <laughs> like like legally blind girl <laughs> um, yeah I was you know fucking lighting a candle for my black comrades um so, you know, like, I mean, I don't want to say that the union movement is over, but, I mean, my experience of it is that, um, oh, my gosh, it's so broken. And, um, you know, they either need to stop, you know, negotiating like the SDA with, mm-hmm. with, 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 with big business and, you know, open it up to the membership. I mean, the SDA, like the SDA opposed to same-sex marriage for so long in the fucking retail sector. Right. How dare you shit on your gay members like that, seriously. And um, so I don't know how they'll organise, but they must organise. And when they're in flexible um, labour conditions, they they can't organise, you know. And it was through the union movement that, say, something like the civil rights movement was, was, was born. Um, and, you know, that was so, – so where do people with a common experience meet – you know, I mean, I don't think it's going to be social media, frankly, because everybody's increasingly falling into two camps, which is Trump is great, political correctness gone mad, or Trump is really awful and is the true problem. And, you know, Marx gives you a different perspective and says, well, they're both problematic right. um, and there is another way. Um, but, you know, and sort of think, think about it differently. So I don't know whether it can actually be on social media, so I don't know how, I mean, perhaps it will be some form of internet communication, but I I don't think it can occur in public, you know, where people are wanting to sort of like, um, you know, elevate their careers and especially on Twitter, which is basically just for entertainers to sell shit. You know that, I know that. Oh, yeah. No, I've I've, I've literally got to the point now where that's literally how I pretty much use it. There was a time Here's a bunch of links that I I wrote. Buy my book, you cunts. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, it's mostly me either retweeting Helen's stuff or retweeting a range of other stuff in between the plugs for my own shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Here's here's a great article about uh, like a Socialism and communism and Marx and by the way, I've got a show on sale, so if you yeah. can also come and see no, that. I can't remember the last time I said anything funny on Twitter, and I actually don't think people are cunts. I think you know people are 
amazing, naturally productive, and you know we've got to do some shit. Um, okay, and we should stop speaking. And I'm very sorry, Will. Thank you. And edit, been, edit this, please. This has been please, amazing. God. Marxists are boring. That's what you've learned. I have to ask learned. you one more question before we finish. Yes, though. yes, yes. Uh, I. It can be short. What do you think happens when we die? Um, we cease to live. Yep, that's fine. That's as good as answer as any. That's, you know, I just like to ask everybody. Everybody has a different opinion on that sort of thing. Is that it? You think that's just it? Oh my God, we have to stop. I mean, this is actually... No, but I mean, just that, do you think that's it? Is that when you die, that's it? Just bang, gone? I mean... Of of course. Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I think as well, Helen, but I've sat across this table, like, well, not this table, but it'd I mean, be you, weird you, if you, I was the, getting into your house the, and recording the, podcasts with other okay, people. Okay, so but... like the resonance of you or the memory of uh-huh. you um, can leave its imprint on others, uh-huh. um, uh, but no, you just stop being. Uh, Helen has a new book out. It's What's it called again? It's called, it's called Total, uh, Propaganda. Total Propaganda, Basic Marxist Brainwashing for the Angry and or the Young. And then uh, read some Marx. Alan and, and Unwin. Don't don't you don't have to message Helen with questions now. She wrote a whole book that answers. No, them. I actually like I, <laughs> I, it's Helen at badhostess.com. I actually love getting emails. Uh, it's you've been such a generous host. Oh, sorry, I'm so eating. your email is called Bad Hostess, and you've let you've actually been a great hostess. So thank you very much for being for, for having me here. It's, no, it's been, fuck off and it's make some awesome. money. Oh yeah, I've actually got to go make some money. <laughs>